Steve and Kevin review Guilds of Ravnica on episode 83 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 83 of So Many Insane Plays, our Guilds of Ravnica review show. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. We don't have many announcements for this episode, but we do want to talk a little bit about uh, feedback from our last show, upcoming tournaments, and remind everyone about Eternal Weekend. So, Steve, what do you think about our last show? Well, our last show was interesting. We did a preview of a Guilds of Radnica card, which we will finally be making predictions on here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the last segment of the show was a metagame update and analysis, and I I just hope that that doesn't get overshadowed by Mnemonic, was it Mnemonic Betrayal? Mm Mm-hmm. And I wanted to bring people's attention to it. Um, got a lot of positive feedback. But I went in and had some discussions with folks about that segment. And I asked folks on the Manadrain and in the Vintage Facebook group if one of the questions that we actually presented on the show, which was, if you don't like the current vintage format, and Kevin and I have the opinion that it's pretty good, not perfect, but, but it's pretty good, uh, then which time period do you actually think is better? <laughs> and I got a lot of interesting responses, Kevin. But one of the things that I wanted to draw attention to is that there's kind of two kinds of responses and that revealed an ambiguity in the question that I hadn't but should have anticipated. <laughs> Some of the people answered by answering what their favorite vintage iteration was. Mm-hmm. So people would said, for example, they loved the Tezzeret era of 2009 before <laughs> Thirst was restricted or the Gush era, you know. Um, or whatever their favorite, (laughs) (laughs) exactly, or whatever their favorite. But other players understood that I was really asking, what do they think, what do they regard as the best vintage format, not their favorite? And those two questions are very different Mm -hmm. because usually people's favorites is defined by a period in which they had a good time and they performed well and they were doing a lot of winning. Right, unrestricted trinosphere. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, I could have answered the question last summer. I did really well, but it was a very unhealthy format. I was at second place at the NYSE, but that was a summer in which Thorn and Mentor were workshops and Mentor were dominating to forty and thirty percent. They were seventy percent of the metagame, so it was not a healthy environment. But I enjoyed that environment. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a hard question to answer. But what I wanted to draw attention to, Kevin, was that so part of the framing of this was looking back at the last five years. And the last five years has had a lot of restrictions. And then the preceding five years had zero restrictions. So it was a bit of a weird situation. <laughs> um, but what I wanted to do was figure out, well, Kevin, Just I just wanted to ask you, which periods in vintage, and if you could give me months and years, that would suffice, do you regard as some of the best periods in vintage? And I'm happy to go first to give you time to think about it. Well, the, boy, months and years, it, it, it's showing my ignorance in terms of specific dates and times. But I can talk about periods in terms of deck dominance, and you'll probably be able to point to when I'm talking about. 
There are some early or early. There are some periods when you and I first started in the format in the early 2000s that I'm very fond of. We started first started working together. Yeah. yeah. And um but but I wouldn't say those are truly in scope for this question exactly. There's kind of a a modernness that started right about right about the Psychotog era. And and I would say that's my first I would say memory of a of a really good vintage format that I like. <laughs> Psychotog versus like the TNT decks at the time and there was there was a lot of groundbreaking going on in the format. But Psychotog was was somewhat dominant. However, there's right. another period that I was not act- – the one period that I'm thinking of when I was not actively playing as much is one that I thought was great, and that's when Tommy Kolowith won. Yes. And I thought that was an excellent period in terms yes. of di- – we've pointed to that particular period in terms of deck diversity Agreed. and strategic diversity. Um, and then the period – boy. Yeah, the last great one that I would f- refer to, I guess, was before cons because Delve screwed up everything for a long time. But uh, yeah, those are the ones that come to my mind immediately. Those are those are good ones. Um, if I had to rank my top five vintage or type one formats of all time, and I would again have to distinguish between my favorite mm-hmm. <laughs> and what I think are were the best, and the best meaning you had a lot of viable st- decks and strategic diversity. The games gameplay was really interesting and fun and interactive and dynamic. Um, I would say in no particular order. Without having done a kind of comprehensive analysis, my top five is number one, the brief period when um, when Gush, Flash, Merchant Scroll, Brainstorm, and Ponder were restricted, which took effect at roughly June 20th, 2008, until uh, Tezzeret was printed that end of September, early October, and Time Vault was simultaneously re-errated. <laughs> so that was about, a, it was June, July, August, and most of September. The, those four months, we had this really interesting vintage metagame where mm-hmm. uh, where TPS and Strategic Slaver were the best two decks. <laughs> yeah, and then of course Tezzeret comes in and Time Vault just dominates. Yeah, um, you know Time Vault might have been okay had Tezzeret not been printed, but having both of them come in together was just a, a brutal combo. Um, that metagame is certainly, I think, in my top five. Uh, another one, um, I really like the period. Um, well, you actually named the 2006. Almost the entirety of 2006 was really fantastic. <laughs> you you had um, Grim t- Grim Tutor finally being used and played a lot. Control Slaver was really good. Gifts was good. Uh, all those decks were really interesting. Workshops was good. Pretty much, the, and Dredge broke out. So I think that year was really great year. Almost the entire year. Mm-hmm. Um, I I was recently rereading. Uh, the chapter I wrote on 2001, which was, I'm not going to say 2001 because 2001 was entirely dominated by um, factor fiction, but I was <laughs> rereading your Origins tournament report, which was really funny. Uh, <laughs> Is that the one where you, I played Paul? You played Paul in round one and you were playing Dark Keeper. Yeah. And yeah. Mono Blue with factor fiction was just tearing everything up. Right, right. Paul was playing, I think, Tricks. Uh, tricks. No, There's a combo. He's no, playing. he was on Mask. Wasn't, I thought he was on Mask. No, no, no. That was 2002. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm conflating the two. Gotcha, yeah, he gotcha. was playing Tricks, and you were playing Dark Keeper. Okay. In 2002, he was playing Mask, and I played Mono Blue Control. Yeah. Post-fact restriction. But that was an interesting period. I actually think, though, that 2002, after fact was restricted, until Onslaught was released, mm-hmm. that nine-month period was really, really good. 
because you didn't have a dominant deck. Factor Fiction reigned things in. Keeper was good, but there was Oath, Keeper, Mask. Mm-hmm. Work. TNT was actually the best performing deck in Europe. Chapin played Miracle Grow. Onslaught just screwed everything up because then not yeah. only, you know, Onslaught brought um, Fetchlands, which yeah. just made everything, you know, really, uh, it, it, it made decks, deck design so much different. I think that period, that nine month period from January 2002 to October 2002 is in my top five. Uh, so I've said 2006, that nine month period in 2002, the four month period in 2008. I also think that the period from the restriction of thirst for knowledge, June 2009, until World Wake, so that was about a seven-month period, was really good, because that was the period in which... um, So that was the year Hiromichi won, and that was a really great top eight. I I wasn't there that year, because my sister's wedding was that weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that metagame was really great. And I was actually playing uh, Beats decks during that period a lot. You might remember that, Kevin. I was playing like Gadok Teague type decks. I think that was a great metagame. And then the last one, if I had to pick off the top of my head, I would probably say the period when I played Burning Tendrils at the Vintage Championship, which I think was two, and, and p- a lot of people were playing Abrupt Decay deck, Keeper decks. You played, I think you made top eight that year. Was that 2010? Yeah, I was playing Jeff Ray Chan and Keeper that I got, year. I got third place with, with the gut Bob Gush deck. I right. think that metagame was also really healthy, um, even though that was still in the Lodestone period. But what's interesting is how few players name name any period in the Lodestone era <laughs> or sense <laughs> in their favorite. It just doesn't show up. I Some people said the 1990s, but I don't think any of the 1990 metagames were actually that great. From 93 to 94, 94 to, to Ice Age, the deck was way too good. After Ice Age, um, Necropotence was really good. And for 96, Zoo decks were just the best deck in, in mm-hmm. because they had Black Vise and they attacked Necro and the control decks. And 97, Prosperity decks dominated until Vise was restricted. And then after that, it was Academy decks. And then after that, it was Necro. Once Academy got restricted, it was Necro all over again. And then Necro finally got restricted in October of 2000. Uh, of 2000. So I don't think there's really a Type 1 metagame before October 2000 that I would consider diverse, balanced, dynamic, and interesting. <laughs> and I wouldn't even consider anything from 2001 because right because you get Invasion and then it you know, in October of 2000, and Invasion dominates, uh, Factor Fiction dominates the whole next year. So I don't, I, I would just eliminate anything before January 2002 as being a really great format. Um, that was yeah, my, I, that was my intuition, but you articulated it far better than I ever could. <clears throat> that it's kind of a dark, age, not dark age, but it's kind of the medieval age of vintage, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> and it's interesting too, how there's definitely a modern, you could point to a modern transition around Invasion but it was so bad because of fact that it still feels like it's part of a prehistory almost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even, I mean, TNT really emerged. TNT and Miracle Grow and all those decks emerged right after Fax Restriction. Mm-hmm. Um, it really was so a pivot point. I, yeah. yeah. I would ask folks, just we can make this the question of the show what is your favorite format of all time, vintage type one? And what do you think? What do you think is the best? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So, Steve, you know, you're, uh, the way you described some of those things made me think about various pivot points throughout the history. Factor Fiction, I never really thought about it in these terms, but it really was kind of the fulcrum of getting us out of the Keeper era and into the modern era. Well, I think one of the problems was that 
there really never was the keeper era because <laughs> be, well part of it was because so you got you know the deck c- goes in these ebbs these ebbs and waves uh ebbs and flows but it rises and then it gets crushed by academy it rises and it gets crushed by tricks it rises <laughs> and it gets crushed by mono blue yeah. and then you have then you have that period where keeper actually is good for about 9 months but it it never was really good as good as its proponents as its proponents believe yeah i take your meaning there so aside from alpha which is the clear number 1 which what's what's your top 5 sets that have in terms of impact on vintage looking back wow um that's that's a, a very good question at one point i actually wrote a star city games article that took my complete checklist of vintage playables and then organized it by set quantified so yeah sure so you could see at the time how many sets actually made an impact i i couldn't answer that question off the top of my head because it's too much of an empirical question <laughs> but shards of alara had an enormous impact because it had both tesseret and ad nauseum um mm-hmm. future sight was just gigan- gigantic despite the size of the set because it had tarmogoyf uh yeah packed packed and I on think, all the dredge cards i think you're thinking small potatoes though I th- well, i'm talking pic- i'm talking yeah, the onslaught, sets, yeah onslaught, onslaught mirrodin cons i agree well cons only has two cards so it's hard <laughs> yeah but they're <laughs> but two cards, cards are- <laughs> that destroyed vintage and are arguably still doing so <laughs> well if you want to think about it in terms of tent poles i i think you have to include world wake because world wake gives us lodestone and jace yeah and stoneforge um, and so yeah, yeah. So, so there are there's kind of tentpole sets. Yeah. I think Onslaught next to Alpha is the most significant set in the history of the format. E- yeah. You know, Urza block is obviously huge because you get the most number of restrictions next after Alpha, but um in terms of the the po- mana potential possibilities Onslaught is just it's second only to Alpha. <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably fair. And you're right, restrictions really t- temper the impact of both cons and and Urza's in hindsight, saga and legacy, but, yeah. but Saga and Legacy were just enormous, and the ripples, ripples are still being felt, right? I and mean, we just got a preview card that is kind of a pale imitation of Yogmoth's <laughs> will, <laughs> which was such a temple of the format for many years. Yeah, it, we it's to, interesting. We used actually. to talk about on this show how interesting it was that Yogmoth's will wasn't being played anymore. Now we don't well, even say that. <laughs> well, a part of the reason for that was because of Graph Digger's Cage, which was enormous printing. But uh, understood. Yeah, no, no doubt. I, I it's interesting to see the the when we unveiled. Obviously, we recorded the show our last show a couple weeks before we unveiled it. People were instantly calling it, you know, reverse Yogmos will. But right. I I really preferred my uh, version, which is Steel Graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels more resonant with the original, you know, original Alpha set first edition. That's funny, Steel Graveyard. I like it. <laughs> So anyway, to our audience, please do give us your thoughts on social media or in forums or respond via email what you think about Steve's question. Steve, shall we move on to upcoming tournaments? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so in my neck of the woods, we have Eternal Weekend Trials coming up. How lucky. Yeah, I know. Well, unfortunately, I don't get to go, but that's for personal reasons. Legacy and Vintage Trials run by Rivals Gaming in Elkhart, Indiana. So just south of the border between Michigan and Indiana, Rivals Gaming on October 6th. Looks like they're, they say they're listed from 2 to tw- or 12 to 5, so I'm not sure what order or what structure they're trying to run their event. But if you're looking for more information, you can find it on Facebook. And Steve, any other upcoming tournaments in your neck of the woods? 
Or is everybody waiting um, for Eternal Weekend? No, no. I, I, Udo hasn't announced their last, uh, their October event, but um, I'm sure there'll be an October vintage. Yeah. And just a reminder, Eternal Weekend is coming up Halloween weekend. Ooh. Early November. I know. And we'll be now, there. Now, I, on the VSL, I might have misrepresented you on this. What is actually your favorite holiday? Is it Christmas or is it Halloween? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, it's, it's Christmas, but, but Halloween is, is, is absolutely number two. And uh, there's kind of, see, here's the thing. You know the beginning of the movie Demolition Man? <laughs> I have not seen that. <laughs> <laughs> Where they talk about in the distant future, uh, there's going to be a, a, a gigantic San Diego, Los Angeles megaplex. Or in a megalopolis where these cities will merge into this big thing they call San Angeles or whatever. Huh. That's how I feel about Halloween and Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween is the beginning of this great tentpole time of the year <laughs> that extends through Thanksgiving and into Christmas and then New Year, where the whole time is just a joyous occasion. The weather turns cooler. <laughs> you might get snow on Thanksgiving in our neck of the woods, that kind of thing. So that's what I mean when I say Christmas is number one on you know on 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 the books. Halloween is number two, but really they are part of this large joyous thing. That's why my favorite movie is The Nightmare Before Christmas. It really just encapsulates it, it merges and melts them together. Yeah. Right. I never All thought right. I'd use Demolition Man as an allegory to the Halloween Christmas time of the year, but it worked. It really worked. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so this is our Guilds of Ravnica set review, but it wouldn't be a set review without our report card. So let's see how we did on the Corset 2019. Okay, so for Corset 2019, we reviewed, let's call it a dozen cards, but as usual, there are a number of cards that we discuss more for their interests than their playability. So like usual, for the likes of Alpine Moon, Amulet of Safekeeping, Meteor Golem, Nickel Bolas, the Ravager, Isolate, Nexus of Fate, Chromium, the Mutable, and Mistcaller, we predicted zero and the result was zero. Moving on to those cards that we did predict non-zero amounts for, first up is Remorseful Cleric. Steve, Remind us what these cards are. Before yeah, Remorseful you... Cleric is the 2-1 flyer that you can sacrifice to Tormod's Crypt them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Steve, you predicted two. I predicted one. The actual was zero. Now, there, the zero comes with a little bit of an asterisk because it's not. it doesn't count for our uh, points, but it does count for our analysis. There, there was one undefeated League deck that had a Remorseful Cleric in the sideboard. It was one of the new survival variants. Cool. That was That's one. a great survival card. Yeah. yeah, it totally is. So it didn't show up in a top eight or winning performance, but it, w- it was right on the cusp. A league, you know, an undefeated league deck is no slouch. So the card is, I would say, as we described it, playable, but it doesn't have a great home. Next up makes me sad. Runic Armasaur. Steve, you predicted three. I predicted one. The actual was zero. But... Not without my trying, <laughs> because I did do well with <laughs> Runic Armasaur in a couple of local events that did not draw 16 players, sadly. We've been having a hard time lately getting strong attendance at RIW and Battle Creek, so um, I did play Runic Armasaur actually at two events, and it was, it was okay. I would describe the card as playable, and as we analyzed, really fantastic if you can get it into play against workshops. Otherwise, tricky to maximize against the Xerox stacks. 
I did win one game, though, where I had a pair of runic armosaurs out, and they were just completely stonewalling the ground, and it was really, really a great feeling. <laughs> Next up. I, I definitely, I think we saw some of those at 5-0 in the challenges. Oh, sorry, the leagues, not the challenges. You know, I, I didn't find one, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the card is a good role player, and I think it might have a, a future in the long term, too. Next, there is Psy Master Thopterist. This is the new three-mana blue legend that makes Thopters whenever you play an artifact. Steve, you predicted four. I predicted five. The actual was only one. Wow. That one was by uh, Justin Gennari, who got third place in the challenge with a Psy Paradoxical Outcome list, which is basically the use case that you and I described. I think the card is a little better than this one success story belies. Um, I, I do think it deserves a look in paradoxical outcome for all the reasons we discussed. We don't need to rehash it. It is just a very effective way to circumvent stony silence. And it also just happens I, to be a good tool in other matchups like workshops. The bar is so high to yeah. get, to gain a slot in yeah. that deck that <laughs> I, I can understand why it hasn't caught fire. I think the other issue is that the deck is so well designed right now to combat stony silence that it probably doesn't really need tactics like this. So that's fair. We'll see. That's totally fair. I think we, the card has legs though, because anything that synergizes agreed. with playing a bunch of artifacts is always going to be a consideration in vintage. On a related note, Tezzeret Artifice Master. Steve, you predicted zero. I predicted one. And this one goes down for Steve. The result was zero. You, you never lose being pessimistic on uh, in, in this competition. <laughs> That's funny. The, uh, the bar for Planeswalkers is just incredibly high. It's so incredibly high. The last on this list is Infernal Reckoning. Steve, you predicted one. I predicted zero. And the actual was zero. And which, which was this card again? This is the, the Swords to Plowshares for Colorless Creatures, the black spell. Yeah. Um, there were two sideboard performances for this card in smaller events events that are below the 16 player threshold that we require for success here i think one was a, a 10 player one was a 12 so the card does have some 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 interest out there and people have done okay with it in small events whether or not that translates into larger long-term success we'll see i'd like to i'd like to put a pin in that topic as pertains to our review of guilds of ravnica too so in summation out of all the cards we reviewed and discussed and predicted for Corset 2019, there was one top eight appearance. Wow, Corset did not has not shown up very much so no. far. We predicted potential play, and that is like non-zero play for five cards. Only one of them actually came through. A couple are on the cusp, right? An undefeated league deck, some local success, some smaller events. But yeah, Corset 2019, not a big winner in vintage. Interesting. Let's move on to a set that might be a big winner in Vintage, Guilds of Ravnica.
As we like to do for new sets, we'll talk a bit about the mechanics of Guilds of Ravnica. And like prior Ravnica-based sets, Guilds of Ravnica has guild-specific <laughs> key- keywords and has a very similar construction that is gold cards and split cards and that kind of thing and, and hybrid mana, all that all that jazz, guild gates and, and shock lands. There's a lot of common ground here on this new Ravnica set. There are five guild-specific keywords in this set, four of which are new. The recurring one is Convoke for Selesnya. These are some interesting keywords, and I think some of them have vintage application. So let's talk about that. The biggest one in my eyes, in terms of abusability, (laughs) is Surveil. (laughs) Agreed. Surveil is the Demir mechanic, which is a cousin to Scry. Surveil means to, surveil comes with a number, like Scry does. Surveil, one, two, three. It means to look at that many cards, and then you may put any number of them in your graveyard and the rest back on top of your library in any order. Effectively, this is Scry, except the cards you don't want go to your graveyard instead of the bottom of your library. Exactly. Which, as we all know, is a much more powerful and abusable mechanic because the graveyard is just another zone that you can get as a resource, far more so than the bottom of one's library. Agreed. Grenzo notwithstanding. So we're going to talk about at least one pretty excellent card with Surveil here. Actually, I think we're going to talk about two if I'm revealing the risk. I'm sorry, if I'm looking forward at the list properly. But in general, this is a very vintage-friendly mechanic, right? Full stop. Yeah. Scry is good. There aren't many Scry cards that are played in vintage. What 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 is there that I'm forgetting other than Preordain? Anything? Um, Planeswalker with Scry? Uh, I really can't remember another card that's described that she's played. Wait, edition. there's a, uh, uh, is there a, no, no. Anyway, point is, is that if you were to take the same card, like Preordain, and replace Scry with Surveil, it would be way better. <laughs> yeah. A, a one mana Preordain with Surveil would be an incredibly good card. And that's because so much of Vintage is using the graveyard as a resource between Delve and Dredge and Snapcaster and similar things. Definitely a resource. But we'll talk a little bit more about Surveil when we get to some of our specific cards. Next what do you up, think the chance are, chances that they'll print a card that's one blue, Surveil 2, draw uh, a card, not zero? Yeah, zero, zero. <laughs> I mean, there would have to be some kind of mass mania takeover R&D for that to be true. <laughs> and I didn't see anything even close to that in this set. No, there is not. Yeah. They, they've learned their lesson, I think. We'll see. Next up is the is it mechanic, Jumpstart. Now, this one is, on its surface, also, I think, quite abusable. But it's, it's, it's tamped down by the fact that they didn't put it on any amazing cards in this set. Jumpstart is a mechanic that allows you to cast a card from your graveyard by first discarding a card and then paying its mana cost. Again, on its face, that's a very vintage-friendly mechanic. If you put it on any cards that matter... And from a vintage standpoint in this set, they really didn't. They put it on the shock that's overcosted. They put it on an inspiration that's actually well-costed, but not good enough. They put it on a boomerang, a number of other fun things, combat stuff. But in general, they didn't put it on any vintage-costed cards or effects in this set. We'll see. Next is the Golgari mechanic, Undergrowth, which is uh, just a... I think they call this one an ability word. I'm not sure if it's ability word. is I'm using it correctly, but it's it refers to an effect that counts the number of creature cards in your graveyard. Variable effects that count the number of creatures in your graveyard. And this is a vintage-friendly mechanic in so much as there is one deck that does this with regularity, but that deck does it very well, and that is Dredge. 
we're going to be talking about a couple of undergrowth cards in our review, specifically due to their application in Dredge. The fourth mechanic is the Boros mechanic. It is called Mentor. As much as I am excited, annoyingly, by, yeah, much <laughs> much as I'm excited by things that call or are referred to as mentors, this mechanic doesn't really have much application in Vintage. It's a creature pumping combat centric mechanic, and we've said time and time again that those kind of mechanics just don't have an impact to this format. <clears throat> Could be a thing in Standard, definitely a thing in Limited. In this case, not in Vintage. And we do not have any cards with Mentor on them that we're going to review. Steve, other thoughts about the mechanics of this set? Do you have any overall impressions? I thought you did a great job summarizing them and encapsulating their potential in the format. I entirely agree Surveil is the one that is of most interest just as a, me- just as a mechanic in terms of potential use and application and utility in the vintage format. Um, I, I'm frustrated they used Mentor as a <laughs> mechanic given that it's one of the most prominent cards in the format. So that's going to create some confusion from time to time if it were ever uh, used used in the format. So hopefully it won't be. <laughs> You're right. That's an interesting point. Mentor my mentor would be just an incredibly confusing thing to say. <laughs> also highly unlikely, but regardless. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to our actual cards and let's start with a real doozy. This is Mission Briefing. Mission Briefing is an instant for you, you. Surveil two, then choose an instant or sorcery card in your graveyard. You may cast that card this turn. If that card would be put into your graveyard this turn, exile it instead. Diligence-wise, blue-blue is an eminently castable vintage mana cost, of course, the highlight being mana drain. There's not a lot of cards that have just that single designated blue, double designated blue mana cost other than drain that see play. That's right. Um, But part of that, I think, is coincidence. If there were other great cards, this would not be a restrictive mana cost by any stretch. This effect is obviously very similar to Snapcaster Mage without the 2-1 body. It is also very clearly a superior effect to Snapcaster Mage's text box for many reasons. One of those reasons is that you surveil before you choose your card meaning you have access to more choices than what you do when you just cast a Snapcaster Mage currently. The other advantage is you don't target the card. You choose it on resolution. And as such, this card cannot be fully... Interesting. Cannot be kind of stifled or countered, so to speak, with a targeted graveyard removal effect like Surgical Extraction or Deathrite Shaman. Now, you might still get stymied (laughs) functionally if there was only one choice and they remove it in response and you don't hit two in the top, you know, you can get unlucky, but the card itself, the effect, is not stopped by targeted removal in the traditional sense. And it's still thwarted by Grafdigger's Cage. Yeah, that's totally true. But let, let me first get to the third advantage. The third advantage this has over the Snapcaster effect is that it is not the Snapcaster version with flashback, it is the Jace Rin's Prodigy You May Cast version, which ah. means alternate casts are available to you, Force Another of Will, Mental point. Misstep, Gosh, etc. All the advantages is that JVPs that is to say, Telepath Unbounds minus ability has this card also shared. So this card has three key advantages over Snapcaster Mage and one big, well, I guess two big drawbacks. One small drawback, which is the double designated mana cost, which is no small thing, but the big drawback is the lack of the body. Steve, I want to hand it over to you for your impressions now <laughs> after we got the baseline well, out of the way. Well, the fir- no, that, those are, that's a great analysis and um, insightful, the, the distinctions that you drew. The first place I want to go with this is I want to just 
briefly walk through the possibilities with this card. Mm-hmm. So the first option is that you surveil, you put two cards into the graveyard, and and then you use this card. So your opponent plays a spell, you respond with this, and let's say you bin, I don't know, a Pyroblast or a Misstep. You can spend blue-blue to play one of those cards, and you can also you know, get rid of something you don't want to draw, right? Mm-hmm. The second possibility is you bin one of the cards, um, and you keep the other on top. So you could bin a counterspell that you could then play, like a Force of Will. Yep. Um, and then you could, um, you know, anticipate drawing a good card that you've placed on top. Um, the third possibility is that you just keep both on top and you flashback something else that's in your graveyard. Mm-hmm. I think where this is really cooking is that second scenario. <laughs> well, right. Th- I believe that if I'm understanding you correctly, keeping one on top and putting one in the graveyard means that you are doing, in my eyes, one of two things. You found a flashbackable instant that you really want, as well as another good card, in well, which case you like you, you hit the jackpot, right? <laughs> no, what I'm trying to say is that if you get if you um if your your opponent is playing something on the stack, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Or they have a permanent play and you want to play a removal spell, this functionally becomes blue, blue, look at your top two cards. Uh, you may put them on the top of your library in any order, draw one card. Yeah. That's essentially what it becomes. Well, yeah, which it, is, it, you're right. It's like an instant speed preordain and snapcaster together. Well, it's, it's mostly just in that case, just an instant speed preordain because the difference is that instead of actually putting in the graveyard where you can then play it, it's just the functionally the same as just putting it into your hand. Yeah. No, you're <laughs> right. You, I, I see your point. Yes. If the card so, you want to cast is on top, then it's kind of like you just drew it, but you have to play it right then. Yeah. From your, you're playing it from your graveyard instead of your hand, yeah. but it's functionally the same. So in, a, in essence, though, the question I have is, would you pay blue, blue to preordain an instant speed? And if I it, think- If it had these other modes- the, like the two other modes you've already listed, absolutely. <laughs> well, I think the issue is that um, you're getting. I think basically this is preordained, is what I'm trying to get at. Except that you get the additional possibility of being able to bin two cards, and you can also hit any of the other cards in your existing graveyard. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much more valuable that is. It could be enormous. It could be marginal. It's obviously situational. Yeah. But I think to some extent that's really what we're talking about. So here's the question I would like to know. What percentage of the the answer to? What percentage of the time do you think a player is going to hit a card that's already is going to flash back a card? Flashback isn't quite the right word, but you know right. what I mean. I do. They're going to tar- they're going they're not targeting either. They're going to <laughs> let's just say flashback for yeah. They're going to choose the card let me re- re- rephrase that. What percentage of the time is a player going to choose a card that's already in their graveyard with mission briefing or a card that they immediately put there from the surveil? And I think the answer Wait, to that question... You mean in other words, one versus the other? Because the, the sum yes. of the two is 100%. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm saying one versus the other. And okay. That's why I said already in the graveyard right, before right. this card is played. What percentage of the time is it going to be... Are they going to choose a card that's already in their graveyard Versus a card that they put, and I think the answer to that question is really significant. Yeah, I'm trying to construct a scenario, Kevin, to think through the value proposition that mm-hmm. this card offers. Right, and the question I had was, what percentage of the time will you hit a card that's already in your graveyard versus a card that's on top of your library mm-hmm. but that you've been into your graveyard with surveil? 
And part of the reason I think that matters is because it, it allows me to figure out how much value you're getting from the distinct components. And, and what I think, so the, I'm trying to think, what's the maximum value? <laughs> maximum value is you, you optimize your next draw, which means that you need to move, something on top of your library needs to move. You don't want to keep them both right. on top or you're not actually improving on your pre-existing situation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that means that you're, you're binning one of the cards, likely. Um, and uh, you're also getting to play something that's high value from your graveyard, like a Force of Will or a Pyroblast mm-hmm. or something like that. So the question, the fundamental question is, is it worth it to do those two things to pay blue-blue? There's no question it's worth it for blue because preordain sees ample play. And there's no question that there's value at blue blue one if you get a, a, a small body because Snapcaster Mage sees, mm-hmm. lots, of, sees lots of play. But d- is there enough value at blue blue is the question. And I think the difference between blue one and blue blue is more than a little. It's, it's really a mountain. You know, I'd, I'd like to... <laughs> poke at that a little bit because on, at face value I agree with you but you never play Snapcaster on turn one. I think what you're getting at is totally valid in terms of the difference between U1 and UU but part of I feel like part of the reason you say that is because you're thinking about the early turns of the game and or you're thinking from the perspective of a gush player who's still only going to have three lands on turn six but there there's increasingly less difference between UU and U1 once you get past turn one. And we're talking about a Snapcaster effect that is at its best after turn one. So I don't want to minimize that to the point of nothing, but I do think it is a pretty low down the list of considerations, honestly. I think that's fair. It's it's certain, you know, most of the blue decks I played in the last couple of years tend towards the, the Turbo Xerox school, but I played quite a bit of big mana blue decks. And I, and I think even there and in a paradoxical deck blue is really the bottleneck yeah you know that's um, true especially an outcome snapcaster's mana cost is especially advantageous because blue is a bottleneck right if snapcaster cost blue 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 it wouldn't even see play in paradoxical (laughs) i I, I think you'd still run one but your point is well made that it would be much more difficult to utilize so we're, we're skipping ahead to some of the use case applications so i guess my statement earlier was probably I don't know. It's probably not giving enough credit to the impact because your outcome example is a perfect one. I guess I was already thinking ahead to just modern Jeskai decks and how on on turn three or four you can expect to have developed your mana well enough to play this. But those decks right. don't even run basically off color moxins. So if you, even if you want to do this on a pyroblast, you still usually have the ability to do it. But but you do have to commit your two duels on turn two, and if you have only an off-color Moxon left up, then you are restricted in a way that you wouldn't have right. been for Snapcaster. Exactly. However, exactly. But the, There's the, one the, sorry, the flip side, sorry. though, is that usually when you're snap at, snapping back a Pyroblast, you know that you're snapping back a Pyroblast, so are you okay like tapping right. the two Valks, Valk is a bad example, tapping a Tundra and a Valk, and then leaving your Ruby up if that was your plan? This card requires yes. more flexibility, though, because your choices change on resolution. So, so I'm, I'm walking back True. my thoughts that I'm thinking about it. The fact that you have to commit two blue up front, <laughs> functionally, in, in like a Jeskai context, means you're going to have to tap those two blue duels, sometimes leaving up an off-color, off-color a non-blue mox or you know a specific mox, 
And then you're going to like surveil into a card that's a different color than the one you were planning to cast and think, oh, I wish I could cast this card instead now, right? Well, the, surveil, you, the surveil comes first, so you, you'll... No, you, the, the point is you've got to commit the mana. Like if you've got Volk hold, Tundra hold we're Ruby... Getting, we're getting... We're getting I know, but hold, just let me just stop after this. You've got Volk Tundra Ruby. In order to cast a Snapcaster, you would, you would have to pick which dual land you're going to leave up. In order to cast this card, I you see. have to tap the I two duels. I see exactly what you're saying. If you surveil yeah. into Ancestral Recall, yeah. you, you don't get to cast it right there because you just left your Ruby up. That's, that's what I'm getting at. Anyway, Total, we, we're going down the rabbit hole there. I think... There's two things I want to draw out. That, uh, I, that, yeah, I don't that, want to stop you from your train about the value well, proposition. No, I, I think that's an it's an important question. I don't want to necessarily. I want to. I want to slow down the train, and, yeah, I, and okay. I want to draw out what I think are the two preliminary conclusions we've we've gotten about the card from this discussion. Mm -hmm. The first is that this card is strategically complex, meaning that <laughs> you're making a lot of different decisions simultaneously that mm -hmm. have short term and long term implications. You're making a decision about what you're going to... There's three decisions you're making simultaneously. You're making a decision about what is the next card you're going to draw. And that's an important one. You're making, that's interesting. You have to make that choice before any other exactly. in terms of the order of operations. Exactly. So you have to think yeah. way down the line, not just what's happening yeah. in the immediate present, but you have to think the next turn in many cases. Number two, you have to think about what am I going to choose with this card, meaning mm -hmm. what am I going to flash back in a sense. Mm -hmm. And number three, you need to think about um, whether to put cards in your graveyard and what are the long-term implications of that. It can be both the short-term and long-term. So the short-term and long-run implications. So the first point I want to make is this card <laughs> has short-run and long-term implications. The yeah. second point I want to make, which I've already stated, but I want to make it more explicit because it's actually, as you were talking, it occurred to me it's much more profound than I thought. <laughs> I, I know it is. Well, you don't know what I'm about to say. <laughs> no, no, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> it's uh, what's mo mo if you think about both Snapcaster Mage and Jace Fringe Prodigy, this card does something that neither one of those does, mm -hmm. and that's flashback Force of Will. Yeah. Now you could, I've, I've flashback countless cards with Jace Fringe Prodigy. I don't think I've ever flashback a Force of Will because, of course, by default, every time you're doing it, it's on your turn. Now, I think yep. I'd probably name a misstep or a pyroblast with Jace Friends Prodigy or a Flusterstorm because yep. I know that my opponent was going to play something and I protected it, but I've never, never, ever done force uh, to, my, to my recollection. And of course, you're prohibited from basically doing that with, with, um, with Snapcaster for the pitch uh, alternative casting cost. Mm -hmm. So the fact that this, this card can do that is really actually incredible. And um, it creates a use that you don't get from the other ones, and that use makes this harder to evaluate because we don't have a reference point. Yeah, uh, I can only agree with you there. Factor in other complicating factors like um, uh, the delve spells. Great example. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so you're absolutely right. This card competes. I would say now that you've made the the point with brainstorm in terms of complexity upon resolution yes it's not doomsday or gifts on given level but i can picture a lot of people agonizing over their resolution of this card yes. because it's like make a preordained choice then make a snapcaster mage choice <laughs> and oh by the way did you choose your mana properly before you had those two choices <laughs> yes it's, it's just it's crazy i think as a practical effect the, the point you made about mana is really important 
And this this really does heighten the stakes for that. But let me give yeah. you let me create another example that I think will begin to illustrate and flesh out both the value proposition question I asked earlier, as well as the short short run, long long run problem, or we can call it tactical strategic complexity. Suppose mm-hmm. you play this card on your opponent's end step with the intention of casting a lightning bolt or a swords of plowshares, but let's just say lightning bolt on sure. the opponent's permanent, like a planeswalker. So your opponent sure. has Dak or a Jace, and you play this card intending to fully intending you've left a volcanic island untapped, fully intending <laughs> to burn a, a planeswalker. But you surveil and the calculus changes. You see, right. let's say you see Kevin. Let's say you see ancestral recall and a counter spell. Yeah. How might you? What you might you do there? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, as you've said before, you, you need to start planning your next turn at least because then you have the calculus of is this ancestral likely to resolve here? Have I has the game evolved right. such that I think it would resolve such that now is the right time to cast it? Right. Do I need this counter spell right to right. protect it? Otherwise, am I setting up multiple turns in advance? Um, and do you even want to bend the ancestral, given that you might want to recur it with a snapcaster or something later on? I mean, my maximum value self says absolutely not. I want to leave it on top so I can draw it, cast it once, and then recur it later, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to bend an ancestral almost ever, unless the window is right correctly right then for it to be the spell that I flash back, which is obviously going to be correct sometimes. Right. But, but that just adds to the complexity of this card because your choice is ancestral right now or ancestral next turn. Right. And the, the answer is going to be correct one way or the other in different scenarios. And add into all the complexity of what's the matchup, you know, which counterspell is it? Is it a pyroblast against shops? Is it a force of will against shops, et cetera, et cetera? Yes. I think what I'm trying to get at here is that the tactical the sh- and strategic options are going to become really challenging to evaluate <laughs> yep and so i think this card is gonna be really difficult to play on terms of the in terms of the value proposition i think that distributed value is better than compact value in this in this kind of effect because that short-term long-term calculus doesn't have to be made together so in a sense it's better to have i think two separate cars that did two different things than trying to fuse them interesting okay you meant distributed when you said distributed value you meant distributed across different cards yes. in your deck yes okay yeah in other words you like having preordain you like having caster. four preordains and four snapcasters rather than four of these i'd rather have that fragmented yeah well there's no doubt that preordain does what it does better than this card in many key use cases the the biggest ones being the classic xerox example of finding mana yeah right there's no doubt and Snapcaster Mage does what Snapcaster Mage has been traditionally used for better because we've evolved in this world where Snapcaster Mage is a standard and we use it for its strengths. We use it as a win con. We use it as an ambush blocker. We use it to pressure uh, uh, planeswalkers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We use it as the to its ex, you know its extreme. We're using all parts of it. But I think this comparison to Snapcaster Mage, which is inevitable might be blinding us to a future where mission briefing accomplishes more in that slot. And I know what I'm implying, it sounds like just cut all your snaps for mission briefings. Well, it's not quite that simple, of course, but my point is is that the comparison might be doing us a disservice. Yeah, the the comparison, you know, there's the saying that which cons- that's what that which reveals conceals. 
I think yeah. the comparisons mask important differences, and I think you're trying to draw that out. Yeah. I we haven't even rate touched on this particular point, but one of the points that always matters isn't just how does this compare to existing playables, but wh- what are the what are the applications in terms of decks that would use it? If you look at the distribution of decks right now, blue decks, mm-hmm. deep blue decks, you've got the Turbo Xerox decks, Oath decks, Paradoxical decks, mm-hmm. and maybe Bug decks are the top four. Yep. None of those decks really get a lot of value from this or would really want it. The Turbo Xerox decks just do not have, I mean, they don't play blue-blue spells. Some of them play Jace the Mind Sculptor. I think it's a, I think it's a mistake. The Turbo mm-hmm. Xerox decks, I do. Yeah. Um, the Paradoxical decks don't play anything that's blue-blue. Um, mm-hmm. The Bug decks can get it, and they might actually get a lot of value because they can do Abrupt Decay and things in Force of Will, but they, they don't have Pyroblast. Um, right. So maybe maybe there. Except for Lunatics. Yeah. So it's not clear what deck... Uh, if you want you know? to... If you want to oh, hold on, <laughs> let me just finish the thought. If you want to draw a distinction between this and Snapcaster and say, this does things these cards don't... Uh, those cards don't do, yeah. And, and there's, you have to then answer the second question, which is, okay, well, which of those decks would actually use this to achieve that value or secure it? Well, and I'd like you to finish your initial analysis, which is why I'm laughing, because you started with a list of four decks and then didn't address the fourth one. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the deck that would play Snapcaster Mages, I think, if you would Interesting. let it. And this is the perfect card. For a deck that would love to play Snapcaster Mage but isn't allowed to. And Oath is traditionally constructed with a mana base that would be absolutely the most friendly toward this. Because it has the most access to colored mana. Within reason, right? It still has some off-colored Moxon. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know. I think it's worth considering the effect that this has on Oath. It doesn't let Oath play the chip away at your Planeswalkers game the way Snapcaster yeah. does. But it does let Oath do a couple of things. One is it lets them play a more grindy, even more grindy game vis-a-vis flashing back pyroblasts and such. And it gives them a huge selection engine if they ever get Oath going. I mean, within reason, on, on average, the average Oath is going to fill your graveyard and make yeah. this card awesome. There's no question this card is amazing post-Oath. Um, but but it's also, I, I you know, Dak Faden will help accelerate this card. Uh, they tend to play Preordains. I, I don't know how many you would play, but this might be a decent singleton in an Oath deck. Um, it's just, and those Oath decks tend to play situational cards that you want in the graveyard, like Punishing Fire or Ancient Grudge. Yeah. So Surveil is even better for them than the average deck. I, I don't think deck, we can say. afford to spend a lot more time on this card, <laughs> just because we've got a lot to get through. I know. But, but this is the most complex card, right, in terms of implications that we're going to review. Still, I think we've laid out the complexity issue is huge. The strategic and tactical complexity is enormous. The The mana cost issue we've covered, the, the, the decks that want this card we've addressed. I mean, we could talk at length about how you would vary the construction of modern decks if you were choosing this card. But that could that conversation could go on for far too long, I think. <laughs> um, I'm inclined to quickly categorize this card as pretty obviously playable and very difficult to integrate into existing deck construction norms because of how parasitic it is for other effects. Because just because of the way decks are constructed in terms of ratios of cards, you're going to have to consider where you make cuts for this effect. Yeah. There's <laughs> a lot of there's a lot of the slotting is really the, hard yeah the, the only place you could pull this from would be a slot like snapcaster or maybe a removal spell 
there's just not there's not a lot of fat in modern vintage decks for for the obvious reason. If you're the sort of deck that plays Dak Faden and plays a lot of them, I believe like three to four, de- not four decks, like three decks. I would consider a mission briefing over a deck. Obviously, it is far inferior in terms of its effect on the workshop matchup, but it's a much more aggressive card at um, at fixing your draws early on. I I can't endorse or disagree with that, but I uh, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm only proposing to consider that because it overlaps in function with DAC and then gives you some redundancy in other areas. I I don't know. That's <laughs> you know this card is playable. Some people are going to play this card. I'm going with a non-zero number. How to predict exactly where this shows up, I don't know. I think a lot of people are immediately going to key into a lot of the things we've already said vis-a-vis relationship with preordained DAC, Snapcaster, etc. The strategic complexity is if if people don't intuit it, it, it's going to be immediately apparent <laughs> the first time you cast this spell. It's going to be immediately apparent like, oh, geez, look at all the planning I have to do. Look at the impact this is having on my decision trees, that kind of thing. And as such, I think people are going to be creative with this. I think they're going to shoehorn it into some decks that it shouldn't be in. I think there there are decks where Snapcaster is probably still the better card, for example. There are people who are going to go nuts and play like four of these and four snaps for fun and see how that goes. There are people who, I know there are people who are interested in this in Oath for the reasons we've already addressed. And everything in between. The only thing I would say with some definitiveness at this point is I don't think it's correct for outcome. <laughs> it's pretty clear that the 2-1 body that Snapcaster provides is functional in an entirely special way, tailored way to the outcome deck. Yeah, it, I, I think that's true. I, I also don't think, I think we can pretty much rule this out of the Turbo Xerox decks as well. Not entirely, but it, I think it's hard to use in that in those decks. The Surveil is quite valuable, but those yeah, decks aren't going to cut a preordain for this. So. Yeah, I agree. I agree that it is probably hardest to fit it into that deck and and make it make it work correctly. So what we're getting down to is it sounds like the the most likely home is Oath with maybe a backup to Bug. What do you think? I think that's probably the case unless there's a, a kind of a Grixis deck. Again, the problem is the mana. The mana. I mean, if you're not yeah. if you're not using this to play either a one mana or a free spell, it's going to be really hard to use. Mm-hmm. I agree completely. All right, time to put some numbers out there. Then I am I am loath to go first on this card. I'm I, I'm thinking non-zero and I'm thinking non-one too. I'm thinking <laughs> there's going. I know there's some excitement around this card. I know we have creative people in the community that are looking for diverse applications and anything that evokes Snapcaster Mage is just bound to draw attention. There's just no two ways about it. There is one thing though that causes me some hesitation, and that is we are so close to champs that, yes, people are going to test for champs, but I think at the moment people are disincentivized from extreme creativity because putting in testing for champs and choosing a reliable go-to deck for that tournament is on a lot of people's minds. Well, uh, that's a lot of setup. Um, I I think I'll just go real, I'll just try and be really pragmatic. Since I don't see this being used in any particular deck, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go zero for the next three months. I don't think this is going to appear into a vintage top eight. Wow. Well, I can't endorse a zero. Um, champs be damned. There's still some challenges. There's still people are going to be energized right after champs, that kind of thing. Um, I don't want to cheat and just say one. That sounds like uh, that's a price is right maneuver here (laughs) (laughs) because I really want, I really want to vote with a little bit more conviction than that. 
That said, I don't think the time is right for this card. It's it's not going to come out of the gates as a real winner, but I think it has a lot. It's going to be a slow burn, at least in terms of the next the rest of this year. So I'm going to go a little bit higher. I'm going to say I'm going to say three. Cool. Whew, mission briefing. Good stuff. The rest of this set review will not be that long. <laughs> All right. Next, we have a couple of cards that are related, and we're going to deviate from our normal review process a little bit for these. First is Lotleth Giant, a creature zombie giant, 6B. That's 6B. Undergrowth. When Lotleth Giant enters the battlefield, it deals one damage to target opponent for each creature card in your graveyard. And it's 6-5. Before we analyze that card, I want to list another one for you. It is Molder Hulk. 7GB. Once again, 7GB. Creature Fungus Zombie. Undergrowth. This spell costs one generic less to cast for each creature card in your graveyard. When Molder Hulk enters the battlefield, return target land card from your graveyard to the battlefield. This one is 6-6. Six, six. So Steve, we mentioned in the lead up that we are going to talk about a few undergrowth cards vis-a-vis -vis Dredge, and these are they. Obviously, these cards are functionally completely different <laughs> in the sense that one of them is just a big reanimate target with a big splashy effect. The other one is a, a Gurmag Angler variant, which is good at post-sideboard dodging hate kind of situation. So don't mean to equate to these cards, but they do have at least one, well, several. They do have at least one common thing, and that is they both get a great benefit from there being a graveyard full of creatures. One of them for the results of its effect, one of them for ease of casting. And I don't know how to, how to really go from there. It's easier to evaluate Mulder Hulk because it compares to Gurmag Angler, and that's not so hard to do. But there is one more data point I want to provide before I hand it over to you, and that is average number of creatures in recent dredge decks. The last two dredge decks that made top eight in challenges, going back about a month, had creatures counts of 27 and 25. Interesting. And what that means is, and just for basic, this is rudimentary calculation here, if you've got 25 creatures in your dredge deck, then that means you have a creature every two and a half cards, effectively. <laughs> so if you've dredged, let's say... You, that's, that's the kind of math I used to use on counter spells. <laughs> <laughs> but what that means is, functional on average, if you have a keep a bizarre hand and you dredge discarding three cards, now granted, you get to choose those three, so there's some influence there, but you dredge and you discard, or sorry, you, you bizarre and you discard three cards. Let's say you hit a grave troll, you dredge... Let's say you get the you know the perfect world and you dredge Grave Troll three times on your next upkeep slash draw step. Six times three is 18 cards plus the three you discarded. That's 21 cards. 21 cards divided by 2.5 is pure averages here, 8.4 creatures if you had 25 in your deck. Okay. Uh, that's assuming a whole bunch of stuff. Like you started with a hand of seven, et cetera, et cetera. That's not always correct. <clears throat> so... If you got a really good average, really good average, seems like I'm counteracting myself. If you got the kind of dredge draw where you have bizarre and you hit grave trolls for your dredges, you could expect about eight creatures on your second main phase to have access to in your graveyard for the purposes of undergrowth. If you do more beyond that, fine. Like you could hit play another land, you could hit second bizarre, you could, you know, uh, unearth a fate stitcher, etc., etc. Clearly, this scales up to about the total number of creatures in your deck, right? If you got 25, you could reasonably expect to get to about 20 creatures for this Lotleth Giant. But uh, I'll hand it over to you for from that point to see what you think. 
Well, I think that's actually a helpful con- contextualization. Um, the first thing I would say is that there are a handful of dredge creatures that are of this type. That is, that are, you know, I don't know whether you call these on the larger side. They're not enormous, but they're on the larger side. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those those creatures, um, you know, w- one of the examples of them, I think the, the archetypal example is the... Uh, the, the white creature that uh, when it when it comes into play and when it attacks, you return a permanent from your graveyard into into play. And um, Sun, you're talking about Sun Titan. Yeah, Sun Titan. Yeah, um, Molder Hulk a bit reminds me of Sun Titan, but it has the upside that it could actually be played without needing Dread Return. Mm-hmm. So obviously, Molder Hulk's function is to bring another Bazaar into play. Um, well, I would challenge you a bit on that. Mulder Hulk's function is to be castable when there's a grave uh, graft digger's cage in play. <laughs> <laughs> That's Mulder Hulk's function. It is the Gurmag Angler role that also happens to have some Sun Titan effect built in. That's true. That's Mulder true. Hulk's function is that you bizarred into a Riftstone portal on one, and then you play a five-color land on turn two and just have seven or more creatures in your graveyard and play this for two mana. That's Mulder Hulk's function. It is the Gurmag Angler roll pull sideboard. So, given that, what do you think? Do you think this card could be used in a similar vein? Could be, yes. The trick that I don't know about, because I don't play dredge enough to understand the bell curve of quality of hands post-sideboard, is I don't know how reliable it is on two. I imagine that it is, on average, I imagine it's quite reliable on three or four, and then you get into an issue of what's your role post-sideboard, what's your plan in various matchups. I would say that Gurmag Angler is almost certainly far more reliable, but Mulder Hulk has larger upside. If you're the sort of dredge player who's interested in taking a more grindy role in the common matchups, yeah. then I can see some attraction to Mulder Hulk. Well, it let, it let is me, definitely let, a better I, I card like, to in, in multiple ways. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, I think the more important comparison isn't isn't Gurmag Angler, which, of course, it has seen quite a bit of play. I'm trying to think about these more utility creatures that are mid-sized that, that Dredge sometimes runs. So you just did a survey of Dredge decks. Yeah. Wh- what are the ones that see play right now? I mean, I remember there's a gold creature that when your opponent plays spells, do quite a bit of damage, etc. Which are the ones you've seen? Well, so looking at the two lists from the, the two most recent top eight, top eight lists from challenges, the utility creatures that they're packing are Ashen Rider and Elish Norn in one with no other utility creatures in the sideboard, just hollow one. And then the other deck is also Elish Norn, Ashen Rider, plus a Flamekin Zealot with just Ingot Chewer in the sideboard. I do think there's been a fair bit of consolidation around the, the common dredge configuration of late. Sun Titan, for example, I've always viewed as a bit of a niche deck, like the Sun Titan Sahili kind of builds. Those, those never really became a standard. And then the other example I would use at the moment in terms of utility is probably Fate Stitcher. I know there's discussion about Fate Stitcher being a necessity in order to race outcome decks. Well, I, I certainly think these have dredge potential, but I just think the dredge decks are so narrowly threaded right now that mm-hmm. I don't see these replacing anything that's currently in them. I, I like the point that you made about Gurmag Angler. I mean, this is, but, but Gurmag Angler has the um, very important functionality that it has evasion. <laughs> Wait. I think you might be missing something. Gurmag Angler is a vanilla have, body. I thought it had fly flying. That was a five power flyer. But okay, it's still five power for one. <laughs> this this costs two. 
at most. I mean, at, at least. Yeah, right? it's six six, and it brings you a land back too. <laughs> That's true, I but mean, you have to get you have to have two rainbow lands in play to cast it, and you need to also have already dredged quite a bit. You don't necessarily have to have two rainbow lands if you're running a Riftstone Portal build. Good point. So that that's, solves half of it. That's, yeah, that's part of the assumption. But you do. But to my, I, I mean, I acknowledged it earlier. You do have to have what I would call a good dredge hand. Molder Hulk doesn't scale down to weaker hands as well as Gurmag Angler does. Definitely true. And while Molder Hulk has one more power and toughness. I don't think that is especially material as pertains to the role of the card or its veracity when you're talking about effectively doubling the mana cost. <laughs> but I do expect that there are a number of times Gurmag Angler is cast by Dredge when a Mulder Hulk could have been cast also, right? We've all played against Dredge when they don't things don't go exactly as planned. Gurmag Angler is not always the turn to play post-seeding a bazaar. It's, interest- it's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I think you... you- it's 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 really hard to say. I yeah. <laughs> I, I like the fact that uh, I mean I think you're making some really good points, both pro and con. Um, I like the fact that this can be played off a of ripstone portal. Um, I don't know. It, I mean, it, it it's not impossible to get into play, and it does give you a nice boost once it does. Yep. If Gurmag Angler didn't exist, <laughs> yeah. would you be more excited about this card? I don't know that it would change my equation because. To me, this isn't just here just to beat down. So, so one of the to me, it's it's to get you to the next step. It's it's a threat on the board while it gets you another bizarre. Um, one of the things that you've said already, but hasn't really been emphasized, is the number of creatures that is that you that the dredge decks now run. So, unless you've dredged probably four times, maybe th- at least three times, this is probably going to be cast. For, it's still going to have colorless to cast, right? Yeah, that's true. And plenty of really good uh, dredges will not hit the requisite seven creatures. That's definitely within the bell curve to have dredged very well and still only have hit six creatures. Right. Oh, shoot. I'm sorry. There's one thing I should have said earlier. Narc Amoeba effectively doesn't count toward that total. I thought of this earlier and forgot to say it just now, because while Narc Amoeba is a creature in your deck, most of the time, if you find it, it goes into play and is therefore not in your graveyard. <laughs> So, so basically, right. Narcomiba shouldn't be counted. Yeah, should yeah. not be counted towards your your undergrowth count because if things are going correctly, they're in play instead of in your graveyard. Now yeah, you can fight even- that. You can fight that by sac- you know by using the flashback therapies and stuff. So you have some control there. But I want to toss that up. No, that's a good point. So this is this is not so easy to cast if your if your dredge has been disrupted. Whereas even the modest amount of dredging or mag angler can be cast. You know that's a very good point. You're right. If your opponent has Tormod's Crypt, for example, it has an outsized impact on Undergrowth as, per, as compared to Dell. If your opponent, if you have Tormod's Crypt, sorry, if you get Crypted, is what I should say, if you get Crypted, like by outcome, it's much easier to rebuild if you've just kept one Dredger in your hand. If you have access to Bazaar and one Dredger, you can rebuild in one turn, effectively, and cast a Gurmag Angler. Not so with Mulder Hulk. You would need to rebuild very well and possibly over two turns. Yeah. That's a very good point. Especially given that uh, Tormod's Crypt is the go-to dredge fighter for outcome these days, and still for a lot of shop decks. You know, Steve, your analysis of the current configuration of the dredge decks caused me to research the popularity of Gurmag Angler. And on tcdex.net, I looked for Gurmag Angler in the sideboards, which is, you know, exclusively dredge results. In the challenges, the Magic Online challenges, the last person to make a top eight with Angler in their sideboard, was in July. 
There, wow. hasn't, there hasn't been a wow. gourmet angler it's disappeared. Yeah, a top eight in the challenges since, and that's early July. It was July first, so two and a half months now. Angler has disappeared, which definitely informs our predictions for this Mulderholt card. Wow. Now it still sees some appearances in paper. It's put up LCV in July and August. There's been an undefeated deck. It's not like it totally disappeared. But there was a period in late June and July where it was very common. It would it would top eighted looks like five challenges in those months, specifically Gurmag Angler. Interesting. So things are really evolving constantly for Dredge. All right. If we spend enough time on Mulder Hulk, I think at this point, <laughs> it's I think we agree that it is definitely playable and that is borderline. Pro- it is yeah. probably in our eyes, I would say, I'm encapsulating both of our opinions. It is probably not the right choice vis-a-vis Gurmag Angler. Angler is more reliable and does almost everything that the Mulder Hulk does. I think at the end of the day, the question is how reliably castable is this card? Yep. And I think the answer is not very, and therefore I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it's, I think it's very borderline playable and probably not because of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're basically it, right. Um, I mean, but it is, it's like a mix of Sun Titan and Gurmag Angler. It's kind of right in the middle. So it's hard to say because we haven't had those two effects together. Yep. So if you're the sort of dredge player who's inspired by the, the end of the VSL season seven, dredge deck with uh null rod in it then i think this the the, the riftstone portal larger mana base playing null rods in the sideboard kind of dredge deck might actually like molder hulk more especially if they go down the strip mine wasteland route if you're on a dredge deck that has strip mine and wasteland and null rod and maybe life from the loam i think molder hulk gets way better because then it becomes true more synergistic point but those lists also tended to have fewer (laughs) creatures Boy, Dredge has really gone under a number of iterations in the yeah. last twelve months. Yeah, it's really it, hard to. It's hard in my mind to kind of, my mind's eye to kind of envision what the archetypal Dredge is. I guess I resort to Pitch Dredge, but there have been so many different Dredge decks. There's no, there's no, I guess, definitive version at the moment. Yes, that's totally true. I would say the kind of deck I'm envisioning, if it if it goes so far as to have life from the loam, then it tends to have fewer creatures, and therefore Mulder Hulk is less good, less reliably cast for two mana. So I think right. my argument might be self-defeating. That deck still True. might not be able to cast this the way it wants to. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's possible, but I'm going to go zero. Okay, me too. Now, we, we've gotten, we focused this conversation on Mulder Hulk, but I started by bringing up Lotleth Giant too. This is the... This is the reanimate target that domes your opponent for however many creatures are in your graveyard. So deck construction-wise, it is possible to one-shot someone just with right. without having to attack. But you need a lot of artifact, a lot of creatures, and if they're only running, let's say twenty-five plus, or and some number of those are narcomebas, you're not going to. It's unlikely you'll get a one-shot kill. Um, and and the, you also have to stretch most all of your deck at that point, in which case. Right. Many, many, many reanimate targets will still win you that game. Right. And um And this is a seven mana creature. Flamekin's Zealot. <laughs> What's the dragon that's sometimes used? Yeah, Colagon. Colagon, yeah. yeah. Those are just better. So Yeah, I'm gonna go zero on Lotleth Giant too. Now, Steve, we're not done talking about Dredge. Are you ready for this? <laughs> because I don't our know. Ne- our next card is Creeping Chill. It's a sorcery. It costs three B. Creeping Chill deals three damage to each opponent and you gain three life. Not especially noteworthy. When Creeping Chill is put into your graveyard from your library, you may exile it. 
If you do, Creeping Chill deals three damage to each opponent and you gain three life. So, a free millable drain life for three, assuming it is not disrupted <laughs> by a graveyard removal. I just want to I just want to point out there that this card gets disrupted by anything that causes it to not go to the graveyard, like Leyline or Rest in Peace. It also yeah. gets disrupted by anything that removes it while the trigger is on the stack. So if you get cryptid while this creepy chill is sitting in your graveyard, you cannot exile it, you, which is the precondition right. to having it do its thing. What an interesting card. Um, you know, so just baseline, if you can if you have four of these cards and you can mill your whole deck, you can deal uh twelve damage yep. to an opponent that is still it's it's not counterable, is it? You could stifle it. No. It's an you, what is this an activated it. it's a triggered ability. It's, an, it's a trick. Well, yep. the trigger. Oh, right. It's when it goes to the graveyard. So it's you could stifle it. You could, but um, very difficult to stop. That's a lot of damage. I, I uh, <laughs> I don't know what to make of this. It, this does not strike me as a dredge card, even though you could put it in dredge because dredge just is so densely packed. Yep. With creatures and dredge spells and bazaars and and serum powder. Um, but this is a pretty interesting card, uh, just as a theoretical design experiment. Now, this idea of just packing a deck with 12 almost impossible to stop damage gives uh, it's 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 almost like a thought experiment for inevitability yeah. is what it is. <laughs> and obviously if you can cast a few of these, then you get 6 damage. I mean, which is nice as well, right? Uh, so. no, you, because it'll only trigger if you mill it. If you cast it, it's just oh, sitting in your graveyard. I'm sorry. Yeah. You won't get it's, the effect again with barring other library. cards, yeah. 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 So I agree with you. It is interesting from a thought experience standpoint. And I also agree with you that modern dredge, it, it can be a very aggressive deck, but the aggressive builds of dredge also feature other uncounterable effects that are more powerful, a la Fate, uh, Fate Stitcher. Now, granted, Fate Stitcher requires mana, but also it is just far more powerful and synergistic with the archetype in general. So I don't think at the moment there's a version of Dredge, despite there being a great diversity of Dredge decks, that has this kind of uncounterable damage condition as its primary goal in any matchup. Well, yeah, I mean, there's just no no way that Dredge would rely on this because it just doesn't do a significant em- enough amount of damage. One, yep. there are decks that um, that. So I'm trying to think about how a deck might actually take advantage of the life gain, but nothing is coming to mind either i mean there's no it's not like their necropotence is unrestricted right now <laughs> right yeah the only decks that can make use of their life total as a resource in vintage are doing plenty enough brokenness with 20 life right yeah <laughs> this is a card i would tuck away in my mind tuck mm-hmm. away somewhere is for future use someday but i don't see any immediate application it's yep. a really cool card i love the design i agree completely so zeros across the board for creeping chill next up ral is it Viceroy? Legendary Planeswalker, Ral. Cost of three, you are five starting loyalty. Ral's three abilities are plus one. Look at the top two cards of your library. Put one of them in your hand, the other into your graveyard. Minus three, Ral, is it Viceroy? Deals damage to target creature equal to the total number of instant and sorcery cards you own in exile and in your graveyard. Both. <laughs> Yeah, minus eight. You get an emblem with whenever you cast an instant or sorcery, this emblem deals four damage to any target and you draw two cards. Whew. Strategic complexity, Steve. Yes. Where to begin? So 
I know you normally lead us lead us off with the mana cost. I would just say that five mana planeswalkers have proven playable in vintage. We've seen we've seen most recently Teferi win vintage challenges this summer at blue white three. We've obviously seen Tezzeret at blue blue three. But what I want to talk for a little bit about are planeswalkers and specifically bloomed planeswalkers. So Gatherer tells me that there are 41 blue planeswalkers, uh, including one from one of the un- unsets. Right. So 40, 40 legal vintage pl- blue planeswalkers. Right. And it, just a cursory examination shows a lot of areas of overlap. Naturally. So I would, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's natural because we've been in this, this period where we've had a, a, just a gradual progression of new printing the pl- blue planeswalkers, the planeswalkers in general. Such that, you know, I'm not even sure we could have known this two years ago or maybe even a year ago, but now there are cl- taxonomies of blue planes, wa- planeswalkers. You know, there's there these certain effects recur over and over again. And, you know, two of them are, are present here. One of them is, of course, variants of drawing cards, and the other is variants of removing, damaging, or uh, otherwise uh, dealing with permanence. Mm-hmm. And, um, this card. So what's so? Let's just talk in general about planeswalkers that draw cards. And I just want to, for a moment, go over the kinds of draws that exist. Now, there's the most vanilla version, which is just plus draw a card, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> there's the Jace Bellerin, the original planeswalker version, which is plus two each player draws a card. Then there's the Jace Ingenious Mind Mage, which is just plus one draw a card, so your opponent doesn't draw a card. And then there's like variants of that, like Jace Memory Adept, where you draw a card and your target player puts the top card of their library into their graveyard. Um, the more useful version, though, and let's just put aside Jace's uh, Jace the Jace Storm because that's just on a different level. Right. <laughs> but the more useful one is the one that we see here which is where you don't just draw a card, you get to look at multiple cards, in this case two, and then put one of them into your hand and the other into your graveyard. And let me give you some specific uh, Planeswalkers that do this. Um, Jace the Living Guild Pack, which is a four mana one, says the same, does the exact same, it does not actually do that. It, it's, it does the, la- the second half without the draw. <laughs> but there is one mm-hmm. other Planeswalker that does this, Teferi. And that is exactly temporal archmage. It's Teferi, which is one of the better ones that we've we've seen. Yeah, right. But he's six. Well, actually, Teferi. Right, he's six mana. Sorry, I'm, Teferi, hero of Domin is what it, Dom, Dominaria is one of the better ones, and that doesn't actually do this. It's to it's Teferi, temporal archmage, which costs six. Mm-hmm. It does exactly this. Well, <laughs> sorry, it's not exactly no, he puts this it because on the bottom. This, that puts it's, it at the it's bottom. The scry versus yeah. surveil so this is difference. better. Yeah, exactly. This is better mm-hmm. among the forty blue planeswalkers. The subset of them that have plus abilities that draw cards, this is in the in the bet this is in the top tier of that. <laughs> because this doesn't just draw a card like Tezzeret Cruel Machinist. This draws a this nor does it just draw a card in bottom one like uh the, the Teferi Temporal Archmage. It does the best of both worlds. It allows you to see two cards, puts one of them in the graveyard and one in your hand. So, in terms of the plus abilities that exist, I would say this is at the very pinnacle, not at the very pinnacle, near the very pinnacle of what the Blue Planeswalkers do. Yeah, I agree completely. And they keep pushing the design of what a Blue Planeswalker will do vis-a-vis card advantage. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, we just saw right, so in Corset, f- 
a planeswalker for five that just straight up has draw two cards on it. <laughs> so, um, right, exactly right. And and there aren't and this is this is the only one that we get at five. There is one that does that, but it co- those all cost six. So this is even more infi- more efficient. This is the only one that's that's five mana that's even close to that. Yep. So, uh, besides, of course, J- the J Storm, which anyway <laughs> is in its own separate category. Right. So I think this is really intriguing off the bat. Now let's look at focus on the second ability. Right, deals damage to target creature equal to the number of instants and or sorceries in exile and or graveyard. Because it's both, the chances are this is going to be pretty. This is going to deal at least one, but probably between one to three, maybe four damage off the bat. Yep. Because by the time you get to five mana, you're gonna if you forced and pitched a blue sorcery or instant. Uh, if you played a preordain, you're already at two, and that could be as as fast as early as turn. And if you played a mental misstep, that could all happen on turn one. <laughs> Absolutely. And we're talking about a five so, mana planeswalker, so you're getting a couple of turns right. to fill up your graveyard here. Right. So, I think that this is I think this is a playable blue planeswalker for vintage. I think it's probably in the top, let's say top six planeswalkers. I haven't done a deep analysis. Blue Planeswalkers overall, probably top five, maybe four. What do you think? I, I think <laughs> I agree that it is very good. I agree that it is playable. I think your ranking number is forgetting how many good Planeswalkers there are, but that's not really the point. <laughs> the point is... Well, let's go over them. I mean, what are we, they? We right? did this I mean, so an, we an all episode know- a couple episodes back. There were more than we thought. I think it was more than a couple. It was more than a couple, yeah. but... It's fresh we, in my we, mind, we, right? We, we, well, what we did was we went through all the ones that saw play. I understood. And, and what I'm saying is that if you... At least among the blue ones, I think this is better than most of the ones we just talked. I mean, Sahili Ray obviously has a weird combo. Yeah, but let's but let's not bury the lead here, right? We're talking about Jace, Dak, yeah. Tezzeret, and Jace. Those are the top four. Yes, yes. I'm counting JVP Agreed. as a Planeswalker, right? Right. So we, we've done this list before, yes. right? Then you get to the second tier, which is Tezzeret yes. 2.0, Karn, Teferi, um, Chandra Torch, and there's yeah. at least one other I'm forgetting, right? That's, that's layer yes. two. I think we're in that tier two. Yeah, we're clearly. definitely in that tier. I think tier. we're in the tier two. Sure. Yeah. So if you think Ral is the best one of tier two, then yeah, I guess it would put it in the top five. But it's it's arguable, you know? <laughs> we, we don't, yeah. It's probably, yeah. I mean, Karn is actually seeing play in a lot of PO decks. Sure. So it's hard It's hard to put this over Karn right now. Agreed. Um, I would put it over Tez, I would put it over Tezzeret 2.0. Absolutely. There's actually a legitimate argument this is better than Tezzeret 1.0 right now. Um but that's they they play no, such dramatically different roles though. Exactly. The, the card, it's hard to really The card compare. that you, this compares to is the obvious one I think in this day and age and that's Teferi. People who are playing yes. Teferi, I mean color combination notwithstanding, will have to take a serious evaluation of whether or not it should you should play Teferi or switch to is it or Jeskai to play Ral because the cards are so similar. And we've talked about the merits of Teferi before. You were obviously alluding to it at, at the beginning of this analysis. But Ral has some serious upside vis-a-vis digging. He's going to see twice as many cards as Teferi will over time. And also, the the fact is is that sometimes your deck wants to be interactive on your opponent's turn, which is where Teferi kind of shines. Yes. But sometimes your deck just really wants to grind value, and, and Ral's plus succeeds better there. Agreed. Otherwise, their removal, you know, Teferi gets the advantage in terms of removal flexibility, right? You can target any non-land permanent. So he gets the advantage over, um, like, other Planeswalkers, for example. 
Morale's ability to only target creatures means he's far less flexible in situations like against Oath of Druids, like against other Planeswalkers. Yeah, I also agree there. So I'm with you. This Rowl is totally playable. And you'll get some advantage by being a blue-red deck that would otherwise have wanted to play Teferi, for example, but couldn't make the mana work. Obviously, Jeskai is no kind of major limiter in the modern format, but there's reasons people have played only blue-white. So... I guess in terms of prediction, then the obvious next step is to look at how Teferi is performing in terms of top eight. Steve, it's incredible. In the last three months, going back to mid-June, Teferi has put up 24 top wow. eights. Are you serious? 24 tops. Yeah. According to TC decks. Now, the vast majority of those are vintage challenges. But remember, there were two in the top eight of the Asia Vintage Championship. The, the one paradoxical deck that had the diversity of planeswalkers and then the landstill deck both had Teferi. And there have just been a ton of them in the challenges. It's been performing well at LCV back to July. Teferi's kind of killing it right now. Sick. Well, that... Which bodes well agree, for Rel. That's what I was leading, getting at. So I guess the question yeah. is, does this card have enough juice over Teferi to warrant seeing play? I mean, not that they would be in the same deck per se, but... I think Teferi, I'm sorry, Ral has, has got to, simply got to eat some of Teferi's lunch here. <laughs> <laughs> There's just no two ways about it. Playing red is so attractive vis-a-vis Pyroblast that... And the draw is so, granted, the draw not, is so much better here. The, but the, Yeah, that's not the only factor. The minus, the minus three that. on Teferi, I think... So here's what I'd say. The plus one is better on Ral. The minus three on, on Ral is probably worse. Agreed. But it's... The, the, then, you have, then you have to ask yourself, what's the ratio that you're activating those two. Yes. Right. And also it the 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 plus one on Rawl is not just strictly superior. Be- right. It's situationally better and situationally yes. worse, right? Yeah, and, and there aren't yeah. many situations where I think the the minus is situationally better than Teferi's minus. I mean I Well guess- it's worth remembering that Teferi's minus is not hard it's removal, not. right? It gives them the resource it, back. Three cards. Yeah. So that needs to be factored in. But Ral's r- minus is not always going to be hard removal either. If you need to kill a really big walking ballista and you've only got, you know, four when you needed five or something. We haven't we haven't talked about the ultimate, which what does the ultimate a helpful tiebreaker here? <laughs> oh, geez. They're both of these ultimates are completely ridiculous. I would posit that Ral's is potentially more ridiculous, but that scale is both of them score incredibly highly on that Teferi, scale. Teferi, <laughs> though, I would say has one weakness. It's only four loyalty. You know, that's a good point. I completely didn't bring up Teferi to compare that point. Ral goes from five to six the turn you play it, which can could be a huge difference. Interesting. Wow, this Ral is super pushed. Yeah. <laughs> a, plus, a plus one that looks at two cards and fills your graveyard. And the graveyard. And this, so just, uh, good so just to be clear, this ultimate says you get an emblem. When you cast an instant or sorcery, the emblem deals four damage to any target and you draw two cards. I think that's a better, <laughs> it's completely ridiculous. I think that's a better ultimate than Teferi, but I need. I agree with you, but the difference is so slight. Teferi's is also ridiculous. Whenever you draw a card, exile, target permanent. The, the difference is that Teferi's requires an entirely external, external thing. They both require. They both require an well, external yeah, thing. Well, yeah, but the two external things are are casting an instant or sorcery or drawing a card. It's easier, I think, to cast an instant or sorcery than it is to set up a draw trigger. But you don't need a draw trigger. You just take a turn, right? Yeah. You I, get Teferi's effect whether you like it or not. But Ral's so isn't here's the sure the thing. thing. You, activate, 
you activate the <laughs> ultimate, which is the higher probability yeah. that you can get it? Oh, the same yes. turn? Yes, I agree. Yes. Rouse, definitely. And then, and then definitely. it puts you immediately super ahead because you can... And Rouse is self-propagating yes, too. Yes, because... I mean... Like we don't need to debate well, think, this, right? They're both ridiculous I, ultimates. I, d- I think, th- like, if I had to pick one, they're both ridiculous ultimates. I don't know. I think they're both really good, but I, I actually, I wouldn't classify them the same. I think Rouse is actually really much better. I think it's just much better. I, they're both. I mean, Rouse. It does field four damage to any target, so you can but win you the game with Rouse in a way that you can't. Instant or sorcery. I, I get you. I get you. There are game states where Rouse won't be good enough. If you're down to one card in your hand and they've got Gristlebrand, you want Teferi's Oh, well, that's a, that's a quarter right? case for sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, situationally better and worse. Look, we're, yeah. we're, we're arguing over a thing that is just not going to matter. Yes. If you ultimate either one of these Planeswalkers, you've won that game. They're both completely ridiculous. The loyalty increase that you observe for Rural, I think, is highly relevant, especially in a world of, of yeah. it's still heavily powered by workshops. So Rural is just that much less likely to die. But... The flip side is Ral's worse at defending himself. And there's no two ways yep. about it. But he he has more defense to begin with. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to pick a non-zero number here, right? Um, and depending on our feelings, it might be pretty high. Teferi sets the the standard at 24. There's almost there's no way in my eyes that Ral can take more than half of Teferi's volume. Yeah, that's that's my yeah. opinion. I think that people will be will slightly resistant. I think that again, the factors of developing for st- for champs factor in. All those things combined means I think that Ral is going to be a quarter or less than Teferi's volume, which suggests six to eight. That maybe, sounds maybe right. I, I'll go below that just because I'm going to be conservative, and planeswalkers don't tend to see a lot of play unless unless one player really does well with it, and there's a lot of imitators. Um, mm-hmm. Teferi was also a bit of a slow burn. It, yeah. I did this this 24 in the last quarter kind of snuck up on me. I didn't realize how I, popular it was. I'll just go on record. I'll say four. Yeah. I think that's reasonable. I think due to the champs and the slow burn factors, I'm gonna take the under. I'm going to say I'm gonna say two. Okay. But this this card is I think this card has legs. Yeah. This card has and Teferi's success really demonstrates that. Well, let's talk about the other planeswalker briefly. So while we're sure. in Planeswalkerville. <laughs> Planeswalker <laughs> town. Um Go ahead, present it. This is a this is a very different story, right? We're talking here about Vraska Golgari Queen, which is an incredibly awesome title and one that only she could have. Vraska costs two green black. Legendary Planeswalker Vraska, she starts with four loyalty, plus two. You may sacrifice another permanent. If you do, comma, you gain one life and draw a card. Minus three, destroy target non-land permanent with converted mana cost three or less. Minus nine, you get an emblem with, whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, that player loses the game. So for refresher, four mana planeswalker, four starting loyalty, plus two, minus three, minus nine. <laughs> well, the, the, the reason I wanted to talk about this card just for a minute is because it has a pretty clear path to victory. It comes in with four, so you you get exactly right. You get you get nine. You can get to nine and use it in three turns. Mm-hmm. Um, and if she so she goes from four to six to turn. You play yes. her six to eight, eight to ten ultimate. Yes, and with even like a death ride shaman or anything on the board, you can immediately win the game when you ultimate. So I think if you're playing a bug or a bug R deck with this, and you're able to resolve this. 
plus it, the chances are you're probably going to win the turn she ultimates. So <laughs> that's pretty interesting. Now, that's a lot of conditions, right? Has to resolve, you have to be able to protect yeah. it, and so on. Um, but she does, in a sense, protect herself. So you can sacrifice a land, gain a life, and draw a card, you know, or a useless permanent, turn after turn. So she has a little bit of defense built in, especially if you're just looking for counter spells or removal, and you're right. And you're so theoretically you're drawing cards that interact and protect and maybe her. getting rid of superfluous moxen or something like that. So mm-hmm. I think that's actually pretty useful. I don't think this card is going to see any play, but I just wanted to note that there's a pretty linear path to uh, to just winning. <laughs> and this is going to be a turn three she playoff also, death right. Yeah, that's true. Four mana is a good cost for a planeswalker. We're not being too greedy here. Her removal is basically just abrupt decay. And as we're going to discuss in the near future, abrupt decay might not be good enough anymore in vintage. <laughs> yeah, hint, hint. But we'll see. Hint, hint. All right, zeros across the board for Vraska Golgari Queen. Next up, our preview card, Mnemonic Betrayal. <laughs> for those who don't already have it memorized, Mnemonic Betrayal is a sorcery for one blue-black. Exile all cards from all opponents' graveyard. You may cast those cards this turn, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any type to cast those spells. At the beginning of the next end step, if any of those cards remain exiled, return them to their owner's graveyards. Exile, mnemonic, betrayal. Well, Steve, we don't have to beat around the bush in terms of analysis for this card. That's what our whole last episode was devoted <laughs> to. And I would just like to summarize a couple of things. We, you definitely reached a, a conclusion that I think applies directly to this conversation, and that is you felt like this was a sideboard role player, potentially, yes. for blue matchups. Uh, as we clearly recognized, it is it is very weak in the shops matchup, borderline useless. And in a few other matchups like Dredge, it is also very weak. So it seems to be best in a blue deck that's highly interactive, meaning counter spells and removal. It's best with a deck potentially with discard. Discarded. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Um, and against other blue decks, which pretty much relegates it to a sideboard play. And in that capacity... I think it's really competing very powerfully with a very low number of high-efficiency cards because not many blue decks in Vintage today have large sideboards devoted to other blue decks. And those that do are dominated by Pyroblast and and Flusterstorm in terms of sideboard choices for those matchups. So asking a deck to bring in a card that is both far more expensive at 3 mana and also dedicated to a wholly different role, which is effectively card advantage, would be a pretty far departure from modern sideboard strategy for blue mirrors. Not mirrors, but blue yeah. matchups. All that points to, I really don't think this card is correct in the mod- in the, the current metagame, unless someone builds a deck dedicated to abuse it. Uh, a Grixis-style deck that's designed to hit this card on all cylinders with the thought teases and whatnot. That's my that's my Well, I think steel think? Art, steel graveyard is a very powerful spell. And <laughs> and and, and I think it's a very powerful effect. Um I I'm very inclined to go with you on this, but I also can't escape the thinking that someone someone in the next 3 months is going <laughs> you know, actually a little bit longer than the next 3 months because it'll probably be January before the next set that someone's going to have it in a sideboard somewhere. So, <laughs> um I'm yeah. going to go non-zero. I'll go two. Okay. Well, you know, I agree with you. If we're going to see it, it's probably going to be that way. But if it's in a main deck, I predict it'll be a Grixis deck. 
that has some main deck way to destroy your opponent's moxin. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll see. All right, next up, Niv-Mizzet, Parun. Legendary creature, Dragon Wizard. The mana cost is an unprecedented U-U-U-R-R-R. <laughs> this spell can't be countered. Flying. Whenever you draw a card, Niv-Mizzet, Parun deals one damage to any target. Whenever a player casts an instant or sorcery, you draw a card. 5-5. Five, five. What a text no box. Kidding. Steve, where to begin? Well, whenever you ask that question, I always want to begin with the begin. But um, let me, ju- <laughs> let me just... Like let me Let me uh, carve out or dig out a parallel conversation to the one we just had about Planeswalkers. So Gatherer tells me that there... (laughs) (laughs) Is there something funny about my use of Gatherer? (laughs) (laughs) The way you ask that reminds me of The Simpsons. Is there something humorous about my automobile? (laughs) (laughs) So Gatherer tells us that there are 30 creatures that have the phrase or 30 creatures that have the phrase this can't this this can't be countered um so there are 30 uncounterable creatures in the thirteen thousand plus however big the magic card pool is now and they range from you know uh uh what's what's the best small one the best small one is probably um blurred mongoose Mongoose, (laughs) all the way up to uh to uh emrakul and everything in between but the reason i want to talk about the class of spells of creatures that can't be countered is because Brian Kelly has helped usher in the recognition and respect due to these to these creatures. Now, these creatures once had a place back in the day. I mean, I remember how annoying Scragnoth was in the stompy sideboard against <laughs> Keeper, right? I mean, and, and right, right. Uh, you know, there have certainly been in in uh, Legacy or 1.5, Blurred Mongoose was a menace for a little while, and I remember Kavu Chameleon being a sideboard card in Standard against. Uh, blue white for a little mm-hmm. bit. So, you know, these these can't be countered creatures actually matter. And nowhere is that been clearer than with Dragon Lord Lord Dr- Dramoka, which is uh, eminently mm-hmm. castable and Carnage Tyrant, who is if I could ban a card in in vintage that's annoying to me, it would be Carnage Tyrant. <laughs> it's a card I'm absolutely <laughs> terrified of. Um but um so there are a number of these things, and the ones that are it's six. There's also Mistcutter Hydra, which I I certainly have has seen play. There are a number of mm-hmm. these 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 spells that see play are proven vintage playable in the current or at least recent versions of vintage. I also forgot to mention Sphinx of the Final Word, which is at seven mana, even more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and Thrun the Last Troll has has appeared in Vintage Championship top eights in the last twenty four months. So mm-hmm. these cards are playable and they're good and they're vintage championship material. Question is, is Niv Mizzet among that class? <laughs> now, the problem the, the one thing that all those that I just mentioned have in common is they have big amount chunks of colorless uh, what is it called now? Not colorless, it's called uh, generic generic <laughs> generic mana. This does not. This is super mana intensive. I don't know for a fact that it is uh unprecedented mana costs as you said which is why i laughed at that i remember that there are some really strange mana costs like like in this area i don't know if quite the same but there, there are but <laughs> if you were to put aside the mana cost for a moment and just focus on the text box the rules box can't be countered flying and then these other two abilities which by the way chain each other when a player casts an answer a spell you draw a card and whenever you draw a card it deals one damage to any target 
The third is pretty marginal. <laughs> pretty marginal. But the fourth is pretty unbelievable. And actually, <laughs> actually gets pretty close to something we just talked about not but a few minutes ago, which is... Ralph's yeah. ultimate. Now, in that case, you draw two, but right. geez, that's pretty unbelievable. Um, the one thing I want to say is that the, of this, these, these, these class of uncounterable creatures, the ones that seem to ha- be the most robust are not just the ones that are uncounterable, but the ones that also have Shroud or Hexproof, like Carnage Tyrant, mm-hmm. which, are, which is almost impossible to deal with. Um, and Dragonlord Dromoka doesn't technically have that, but it functionally has it because right. you, your opponent cast, cast, can't cast spells on your turn, and so which means that half the time they can't target it anyway. <laughs> um, and Sphinx of the, of the final, uh, sorry, Miscutter Hydra is protection from blue, which isn't really hexproof or shroud. Um, and Sphinx of the final word does have hexproof. So that's the weakness of this card. Uh, let me stop. So three three of the the common examples that you were giving actually have hexproof the the troll the carnage tyrant and the sphinx and Dr- Dromica has some kind of half or functional hexproof but what Niv Mizzet has going for him is if your opponent uses an instant or sorcery to remove him that you're going to draw a card yes. at least more if you fight over it yes so I, what do you think I I think that it probably compares favorably on its face to those cards, but unfavorably in terms of the mana cost. <laughs> well, um, yes, I agree with you. I also think that if you're talking about the Oath context, which a lot of this conversation revolves around, but not entirely, if you're talking about the Oath context, I actually feel that Niv-Mizzet might be the best of all these creatures to Oath it to, <laughs> if you're still because, so lucky to, because, to do so. Because you have flashbacks. Because if stuff? you Oath into Niv-Mizzet, yeah, then, then his text box becomes maximized, right? You're for for one. You're oathing during your upkeep, so then you're going to draw a card. Yeah. As soon as you draw a card, you do you do a damage to something, right? The the, the engine starts right yeah. away. And if you're starting your turn effectively untapped, then you're at the greatest likelihood of being able to abuse that last ability, which can get out of hand real fast. If your opponent, I mean, yeah, if your opponent has pyroblaster swords, it's going right at Niv Mizzet right then. But you get priority first. You get to respond with your missteps and your your hopefully other search spells. And any kind of counterspell battle immediately favor like <laughs> just pyroblast your Niv Mizzet, misstep your pyroblast. You just drew two cards. Don't forget this is a triggered ability which will resolve before right. any of the spells that Right, that's you. true. So your so if your opponent goes plow your Niv Mizzet, you go, okay, uh resolve my draw trigger. <laughs> and they look at you like, <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. And like, oh look, I drew this misstep. Cast this misstep, uh resolve my draw trigger. <laughs> yeah, obviously it's if they have a counter spell, they're gonna respond to your draw triggers. But it's yeah, it's but it's double yeah, mystic remora, right? It's exactly. you and them. I, I didn't even emphasize that. It's <laughs> any player. Yeah. yeah. Right. So I mean, I just think that there are going to be some real high variance situations where Niv Mizzet is incredibly good. The baseline is still is still quite good, but I would say the as you've observed, the baseline for these creatures having hexproof, I think, means that Niv Mizzet kind of lives in this bipolar yeah. result where sometimes it's going to be much less good, yes. sometimes it's going to be much yes. better. I th- and the in-between space kind I of doesn't exist. I think that's exactly right. This thing can be pyroblasted, but once if you can just get this thing going, especially oathing into play, this might just be mm-hmm. the best of. If you can, we can probably narrow it. If you can oath it into play, it's probably the best of the uncounterable hexproof cards. Dragonlord Dramoka is shielding you from the entire rest of the turn is pretty good, but I don't know if that's better yeah. than this. 
I think this might be, this is probably better than Dragonlord Dramoka that turn its oaths into play. Yeah, I think so. And Sphinx of the Final Word making all your spells uncounterable is nice, but draw. I'd rather just draw a card yeah, for all my spells. Exactly. <laughs> I don't care if they're countered yes, if I'm drawing every exactly. time, really. And in fact, you want your opponent... <laughs> There's nothing so important, really, <laughs> that can't be just re- yeah, remedied by, hey, just give me another yeah, card. Yeah, in fact, it's, it's kind of an <laughs> irony, right? I mean... In some sense, yeah. like Remora, you want your opponents playing spells so that you can draw more cards. So, right. Yeah, that's. Right. Yeah, th- I mean, these Oath decks don't have anything like Yogmoth's Will or Tinker or Paradoxical Outcome that I want this spell to resolve, right. right? The biggest, most bombastic thing they have is, you know, Ancestral Dig Cruise. And if you're telling me that if I Ancestral and you misstep it, I still get two cards, sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> all day. All my spells can be counted. I don't care. Agreed. They all turn into thought cast. So what I would say here is that so here's the here's the problem. The problem is this is almost impossible to cast. That's the fundamental problem. And by the way, these I mean, cards are making me really want to invest in a bunch of cavern of souls because the the more they print that, of this type of effect, the more I want to have a pl- full playset of those. Nice. I, I want to challenge you on the almost impossible to cast part. Right? Niv Mizzet is castable in the same range as a Carnage Tyrant or a Dr- Dramica, unless you have exactly. Mox Pearl, Mox Emerald, or Mox Jet. Well, no, I don't think that's true, because I've watched, i played too many times against Brian Kelly, where he gets Soul Ring or some kind of cards like okay, that. Okay, Soul Ring. Counts, I don't yeah, remember if he plays Mana Crypt, but he uses those cards all the time to cast those creatures. If you're on a five Mox Soul Ring Oath list, you still only have four mana sources that don't contribute but it's to it's often, it's often like Volk, Orchard, uh, Off-Color Mox, soul ring type card and then another duel that's how they cast inferno tyrant often is like th- th- three well, lands yeah. and three I mean, yes if you if you have 50 percent of the four cards i just listed in play okay. yeah nif it's hard to cast i mean you're, you're listing a tautology sure. yeah i just listed the four cards if you have two of them this the is hard to though, cast even point is there are plenty of scenarios where you get to six and this is castable. i think the i think that probably there are a, a lot more where you can get to five and you still don't have that that sixth either blue or red well, I mean, that's that's going to happen. You're you're signing up for that when you when you play a six designated <laughs> spell like this. But again, I don't want to overstate that issue. The vast majority of your mana base contributes to this card, and you will build your deck theoretically and play accordingly if you're bringing a Niv Mizzet power. The, right? Think about it, you're playing Oath against Jeskai. You, you might board out your there pearl, is a, but there or is something, a, right? another problem though, Kevin, which is you're oversimpl- you're glossing over, which is that I agree with you on the blue. But the red is actually trickier yep. because if you if you well, if you yeah. got I mean you have to fetch if you got a aggressively a Volk and an orchard mm-hmm. you don't have the triple red you also don't have six mana well, you have three you have to draw three more mana sources one of which was likely okay, well, let's to be say red you have four lands you know it could, you know even if you have um, okay Steve I, I get yeah, what yeah. you're saying here I, I I'm trying not to be argumentative the only way you really get screwed here is if the sixth mana source you draw was one you didn't have control over. Like, you draw Tropical Island and you needed red. Like, otherwise, you you fetch accordingly, right? You're bringing this in in blue matchups, so you're fetching red aggressively for your Pyroblasts anyway. Okay. I like, think you I think I you mean, think... You build, you build your deck, so you you build your deck with one more Volk in it. It's, it's, not, it's not rocket surgery. Well, I surgery. think you think this is probably easier to play <laughs> than I do. I think it's very difficult. Maybe you just think it's modestly difficult. <laughs> I... I, I don't see how I don't see how you can categorize it as very difficult in a deck that has five rainbow lands in it. Like this deck has more red mana than basically any other deck within reason, except for the straight blue red decks that might have one island, right? But against Jeskai, you know, as compared to Jeskai, Oath has access to more red than, than you do. Just full stop. 
Well, okay. And never mind if you draw black. Here's the mana base of the <laughs> list that Brian Kelly used in the Vintage Championship last year. Oops. Okay. Hold on. Okay. It was two strand, four orchard, one island, one library, two misty, two delta, two trop, one underground sea, two volcanic. Yeah. So he had five fetchable duels, two of which are red. I'm saying if you're committed to play you this card, play you find a place for a maybe third volt. a fourth volt. even. And he has a cavern of souls in the well, graveyard, I mean, in the sideboard as well. Oh, well, that's, that so counts he, as one. Right. So you, you got to factor in how you're going to sideboard, too. If you're bringing in cavern of souls, you probably bring out mox jet or mox pearl, thereby dramatically changing the ratio of red production in your deck also. If you've got three Volks and you're bringing in a Cavern of Souls and you already have four Orchards plus Ruby and Lotus, you've got ten red sources in that deck. Okay. All right. I mean, Lotus casts no, this card basically yeah. by itself, no, that's, of course. that's but fair. I, I still think it's it's pretty difficult. Um, I, I acknowledge you were, you're going to get screwed sometimes. Your Tropical Island is going to be the th- the sixth mana or, or, or you know, Mox Emerald is going to be yeah. it and you're going to be unhappy. Yeah. Or the but library. To be perfectly honest. Or Underground Sea. Yeah, or the library, yeah. So... You construct your deck accordingly. The card's probably pretty good. I expect it to see play. I'm wondering, does it see play outside of the Oath context? Probably not. No, we haven't seen these really seen play outside of the Oath context, but that doesn't mean someone couldn't put together a kind of a, a kind of Cavern of Soul big mana creature deck. I guess that's kind of what yeah, Oath is, just, but... <laughs> I'm thinking about the, the Consecrated Sphinx role yeah. in Blue Moon. The problem with Blue Moon is that you need to have enough islands in play so when the blue moon when the blood moon or the magus the moon comes yeah. down you're not cutting yourself off from the triple blue and you need to cast this understood understood that's true you would need to really be careful how you pl- built that deck and played that deck if you were planning to cast this niv mizzet because blood moon can facilitate niv mizzet right in a yeah. nice way but as you said you've got to have the three basics or two basics and a sapphire which is tricky so, I mean, out of curiosity, I took a look at the Carnage Tyrant performance of late, and it hasn't been that good. There was good. one 16 person <laughs> tournament this month, and the last one was the last several actually were undefeated league decks. Carnage Tyrant hasn't actually been performing that well at all. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and we know that Dragon Lord Dramica has fallen out of favor. So, I guess the short answer basically is that this hexproof, fatty kind of style has also diminished proportional to oaths diminishment over the last few months which we discussed in our last show so it's real hard to predict this uh, I, you and i were not optimistic about a resurgence of oath in our metagame discussion in any way i see no reason to believe that i see no reason that this particular niv mizzet will inspire that and also while i was quick to point out a, a blue moon example for example uh, that deck's also basically nowhere so the the places we think this deck, this card will show up, those decks are dramatically underperforming of late. So what's your I'm prediction? Call, I'm inclined to, to call this card playable, but still predict zero. I because I just think the home that it has is not is not good right now. Well, I will say hmm, I I agree that it's playable um, because I think at a minimum it's a viable oath target. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. think it's really playable in the same sense as Dromoka, though, or Carnage Tyrant, or Thrun. Um, do I think it will see play? I think Oath is on the rebound again, and I think this is just so good as an Oath target. I just, I'm just concerned about the fact that it doesn't have Hexproof. That's the problem. What um, makes you say Oath is on the rebound? So, in our last recording, remember how there were zero Oath decks in top eights in the previous three months? In September, yes. Oath is like already ten percent after of top eights after three challenges. Oh wow, interesting, interesting. I wonder if that's timely with champs. 
has and for the last several years has done better at champs than it has in the months preceding. Yes. So um, it's it's on the rebound again. I I just think the hexproof thing is such a problem. I think <laughs> this is non-zero though. I won't. I wouldn't be. I'll just go one. I wouldn't be surprised to see it in an oath top eight. Yeah. Okay. Well, I agree. If it's going to happen, that is where I think it'll happen as well. Let's talk about Notion Rain, which is a sorcery for one blue black. Surveil two, then draw two cards. Notion Real Notion Rain deals two damage to you. So this is pretty clearly a read the bones upgrade <laughs> vis-a-vis scry to surveil. And for the improvement, you have to pay blue mana now. Read the bones was a card that we had a fun time discussing, I would say, when it was first spoiled as pertains to its relative merits and its comparison to things like Knight's Whisper, et cetera, et cetera. But it clearly has not taken off in vintage, right? It hasn't put up any top eights that I know of. It got it got a little love, I think, in the um, the VSL, maybe. Where did Read the Bones really show up? I don't remember. Well, be that as it may, this card is the effect is superior to Read the Bones, as we've talked about, because of Surveil. This card is decidedly weaker than Read the Bones because of the more difficult mana cost and the fact that it can be pyroblasted. And factor that into the fact that Knight's Whisper has become the go-to incremental card advantage spell for so many decks, especially outcome that's, lately. That's actually no longer the case. Uh, I've been looking at the outcome decks in the Vintage Challenge, and Knight's Whisper has almost disappeared in favor really? of, of a pair of Mystic Remoras. Oh, okay. Well, and, the metagame and, calls and are, sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, be, be that as it may, though, the, in the incremental draw spell, right, for the last several months has been Knight's Whisper in both outcome and in other kind of three and four color value decks. I Oh, and um, I'm sorry, and I should point out uh, Painful Truths, right? The deck that is three colors that wants to pay three mana to draw cards has been leaning on Painful Truths, too. I All those factors in mind, especially what you just said about Outcome and Remora, I really don't think Notion Rain is going to find a home. I just think if there was a two-color... We've said this a number of times for a number of cards. If there really was just a blue-black deck in Vintage that was not trying to be a third color we might be onto something because then this would be competing with painful truths and, 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 and better and situationally better. But because all these decks are three, possibly four colors and because painful truths exists, I really don't think this card has a place, even though surveil is awesome. I have really nothing to add to your analysis, which I endorse wholeheartedly. <laughs> all right. Can I put you down for zero on notion rain? Yes. Yeah. It's a shame too, because the art on this card is, divisive and cool and weird and the matrix and and it's wild all right so for our last trick we have a real doozy (laughs) assassin's trophy green black instant destroy target permanent and opponent controls its controller may search their library for a basic land card put it onto the battlefield then shuffle their library this card is no secret it was one of the early spoilers in spoiler season and everyone knows its comparison to abrupt decay so we can skip a little bit of the preamble vis-a-vis playability and that kind of thing. Obviously, we could go matchup by matchup and talk about where this card is situationally better or worse than Abrupt Decay, but I'm not sure if we need to do all of that legwork. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, when I first shared with you this card the moment it was spoiled, you said, wow, I think, and the first thing out of your mind was, we need to talk about, is this situationally better than Abrupt Decay or situationally worse? And the answer that you and I both immediately agreed upon was yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, where to where to begin? We have this whole conversation is kind of laid out before us. Well, well let's actually yet, yeah, let's avoid the matchup discussion for a moment and just talk about okay. the differences between this and abrupt decay. Sure, sure. So the most obvious difference is the scope of targets. They're both instants, yeah. but this yep. hits a much larger swath of targets. Hits any permanent, any permanent, including lands. Yes, including lands, which is it's surprising. Really, really I would remarkable. Say. Right. Yeah. I mean, abrupt decay hits anything that's three mana cost or less. This non lands. This can hit oath. It can hit a volcanic island. It can hit a basic land. It can mm-hmm. hit a creature of any type, an, a monstrous oath creature, or a tiny deathrite shaman or delver. Mm-hmm. It anything. Um, Jace the mind sculptor. A, plane, a planeswalker, right? Certainly, that's something that abrupt decay uh, casters wish that they could hit. Um, mm-hmm. The second difference is this is counterable. <laughs> mm-hmm. So this can be fluster stormed. This can be force of willed. Um, this can be stopped. The third difference is that your opponent gets to search for a land, basic land card. So if you hit a volcanic island, your opponent can get a mountain or an island if they have one. But actually, it's pretty good against workshops because you can hit the workshop and they're not going to have a basic land. You can hit a bizarre Baghdad mm-hmm. and they're not going to be able to get a basic land. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that drawback is not actually all that bad. If you had a Planeswalker, a big one, I don't think you're going to mind if your opponent gets a, a basic island. Um, right. So so that's, that's an interesting trade-off here. And I think it's a necessary one. To allow you to hit a, a land, you have to have that drawback. Um, yeah, that's why I'm surprised. That, well, never mind. It's from a design standpoint, I was very surprised that this could hit lands. Right. I I want to point out you you hit a you know three two of the big three tentpole lands in vintage that this could hit. But I think the third one that you said is actually the the most important from a deck building standpoint, and that's Library of Alexandria. <laughs> the fact that so many decks, so many blue decks, especially in vintage today, play one strip mine. And strip mine's primary role, primary yeah. reason for being in those decks is because of library, library and how backbreaking it <laughs> yeah. is. Assassin's Trophy being able to hit a library is changes, I think, deck construction requirements to the point where some bug variants, I think, could go without strip mine. And I'm not saying that's a huge deal. I just want to point that out that, especially in a deck that's trying to say cast Leovold Emissary of Trest, having a colorless producing land in your deck is a liability a lot of the time. And so Assassin's Trophy could be used to revise common deck construction uh, motif, especially in a case like Bug. But your, your point, a significant portion of the vintage metagame is not going to profit at all from the supposed downside of this card. Right. Between Workshops and Dredge and then a few other corner case lists that just have no basics. Yeah. That's worth keeping in mind. Yeah. And also, uh, the fact that if you kill like a five-mana Planeswalker, if you blow up Teferi Hero with this card, the fact that they got a basic just scales down in importance so much after the first turn or two. I agree. I agree. Also, I think that, you know, the bug decks can really keep people off an entire color with this. Between Mm -hmm. Nullrod and Wastelands, if your opponent has, I mean, let's say they have a basic in play, they fetch their basic. You might want to just blow up the, the other basic in play, and they might not have another basic. Or at a least lot a, of decks will not. Yeah, yeah, or another blue basic. Right, so, at least not one of that color, yeah. Right. I think this is a nice boost to the bug decks. The question is, how many of this will would this be play over Abrupt Decay? Um, let me yeah. let me pull up... Um, uh, Paul Rietzel top-baited a recent vintage challenge with, um, with bug. I think it was just straight bug. 
Let me pull okay. up pull up his deck list. So so his 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 deck uh he got fourth place and his uh his deck had three abrupt decay, four force, four misstep, t- two dark confidant, four death right shaman, two Leovold, two snapcaster, one trigon. Would you would you want to play he doesn't have any main deck null rods, but he has um and none in the sideboard either. He has energy flux and, and nature's claim. Would you consider playing uh this card in in his deck if you were him? Kevin? Oh, absolutely. What would I mean, you cut? I, I would more than consider. I mean, he has nature's well, claim here. It could be go nice in that spot because it can. Well, it's not as efficient, but <laughs> no, actually, I my instincts would be to cut abrupt decays because of the efficiency reasons. The reason you've got a nature's claim in a deck like this, rather than a fourth abrupt decay, is the efficiency, right? Yeah, it's it's not flexibility of targeting or anything. It's it's because you want to have a one mana spell that you can play and or snap back against outcome and uh, shops. And oath. So no, I wouldn't sacrifice a nature's claim. I would go right for the abrupt decays. And I haven't done a thorough calculus at the at the matchup by matchup level, but the uncounterability of abrupt decay is pretty far down the list in my eyes if you compare it to the targeting requirements that Assassin's Trophy offers. By the way, this deck looks like it might might un- be able to use mnemonic betrayal pretty effectively in the sideboard. Just <laughs> just parenthetical. <laughs> Nice. Um, yeah, this could be a home for that. The I acknowledge the, the value of the uncounterability. It gives you some... I, I especially enjoy Abrupt Decay versus Chess Guy because yes, they're you can sit on it... With counters. Yeah, you can sit on it against Mentor, especially Mentor, but I mean, just incredibly useful against JVP and Dakfane. It's just... It's great in that matchup. And But the flip side is, you know, the counterability of uh, an Assassin's Trophy is, in my opinion... A tiny bit overstated because if you look throughout Paul's deck here, how many ways does he have to counter an Assassin's Trophy? To my eyes, he has six. He has four forces and two flusters. If my Assassin's Trophy gets Force of Willed, a lot of the time I'm I'm not too unhappy about that, right? Because getting a Force of Will out of my opponent's hand has advantages in other capacities. There are many. There are going to be many times when you can structure the scenario such that. You're okay having an Assassin's Trophy over an Abrupt Decay. You're okay it getting countered and or navigating the scenario so that you can fight over it. I personally don't view the uncounterability of Abrupt Decay as a key strategic priority. It's very nice in the Oath matchup, but it's not the only reason for being there. And the fact that Assassin's Trophy could kill their Jace the Mind Sculptor or their Inferno Titan that they cast makes up a lot of that ground. Well, you've played a lot more of these decks than I have of late, so I'm inclined to agree, or at least assume that's the case. The one thing I would say is that in the, in the Oath matchup in particular, there is a comfort blanket, a security level, that, that you know that their first turn Oath can get abrupt decayed. Mm-hmm. The, that said, the Oath deck is designed in such a way that it's not. It, it's a planeswalker deck as much as an oath deck, and it puts mm-hmm. out cards like Inferno Titan. And how good if if you're a bug deck, I think you would gladly take that trade, losing uncounterability to be able to destroy an Inferno Titan or a Absolutely. or a, or a uh, what's that annoying green planeswalker that Brian Kelly sometimes plays? <laughs> the, the wolf <laughs> you're talking about guy. Arlen Cord. Yes. Yeah, yeah Arlen I think Cord. I would gladly I would gladly take that. So. Yeah, and that's what I'm talking about is that, yes, uncounterability does matter, but you're talking about needing uncounterability for the kind of the worst possible case scenarios, right? If they have Orchard Mox Oath with Force back, 
yeah, you wish you had Abrupt Decay in that game. But as you described it, I mean, Oath is not a combo deck. It's a control deck. And it is, it is loaded for bear for the long game. And so I would much rather have the flexibility that you described because a lot of the times they're just playing yeah. a casting that uh, a series of planeswalkers backed by Inferno Titan. So here's the question. Would you replace all the abrupt decays with this or do you have some mixture of abrupt decay in this? Um, I think I'm replacing all of them. Wow. That is how I, that's how I'm going to start with my deck construction because I'm going to test this card and I'm going to start my deck construction with zero abrupt decays. Well, that makes sense from a testing perspective, but where do you think you'd end up? Yeah, I think I would end up there. Wow. I mean, this is whole, I, I like asking this question because we got so many cards in this set that belie this kind of analysis. If Abrupt Decay had never been printed and you had been playing with Assassin's Trophy all this time, and then they spoiled Abrupt Decay and said, hey, you can make it uncounterable, but you can't kill Jace and you can't kill Inferno Titan and you can't kill yeah. Karn or Teferi and, and, oh, and you can't kill Lands. Like, uh, you remember all those times when you've blown up library with your Assassin's Trophy? Yeah, you can't do those anymore. Would you and I be having a conversation like, ah, how many, how many of our Assassin's Trophies are we going to cut for this new uncounterable one? Like, we'd be talking about it as maybe a, maybe it's a sideboard card, you know? Maybe you bring it in for those blue matchups, you know? That's the kind of conversation we'd be having, right? We would never be talking about, yeah, I'm just going to replace all these Assassin's Trophies I'm so used to with this uncounterable version that, that has fewer targets. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm, I'm confident that that is how that conversation would be going. So I'm comfortable with the inverse. Well, that makes this card pretty darn awesome. So what's your prediction, Kevin? Well, it's. T- I mean, obviously, it's it's kind of tied to the recent success of Abrupt Decay and Vintage. There's definitely a, cr- a close relationship there. And looking back over the last, let's see, looking back over the last three months, like we like to do, Top eights using our criteria one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Abrupt Decay is not really burning it down right now. Seven is respectable. I do expect this card to create a bit of interest in bug decks. Yeah. So it'll, a bit of create a bit of energy. Bump, it'll bump bu- bug up. Yeah. And I actually think this is the sort of card that benefits from champs being in our data set. I actually think this is the kind of card because it doesn't, it's not a new deck and it's and people, I think some people will be the sort of people that will say, hey, I like this card. I want flexibility. I'm just going to go to champs with a bug deck that has these instead of abrupt decays. <laughs> I, I think this is the kind of card that would inspire that. Bug is 5% of, of uh, sorry, it's 4% of the September challenge top eights so far. And it was 6% yeah. of August top eights. So I think, I don't think bug has ever lost its luster for people who really like it. Yeah, and it won. It won back to back champs. You know, the summer our challenges. Yeah. I mean, the summer and and with yeah, recent performance being still on on the periphery. Yeah, I'm inclined to give this card possibly my highest rating for this set. Not a ridiculous number, not like a Snapcaster number, but I'm gonna go with um, boy, I could see anywhere between five and ten. Really, I might even take yeah, the I'm, over on that. Yeah, uh, but I mean. Almost every new card so, is a slow burn, but I think this one is going to be... I mean, Bug is, Bug is not very popular, right? Seven top eights in the last quarter for Abrupt Decay, and you have to believe that not everyone who sees this card is going to adopt it. So I'd say saying seven is is a pretty high number for but, this card. But Kevin, there are going to be 96 to 100 and some top eight deck lists just in the next three months alone from the Vintage Challenge. If Bug is 4% of those... Just four mm-hmm. percent of ninety six or hundred. Um, that's four deck lists 
And if they play, that's just four deck lists right there. Yeah. That would that would presumably have some number of these. And if it's double that in one of those months, then that's another one or two deck lists. Yeah, that's why I say I think okay. seven is a pretty high number for this. that's not counting paper results either. Vintage chance. That's true. Yeah. We increase, we have fewer and fewer paper results increasingly over time, right? Yeah. We've got, we got reliably LCV and recently we've got the Age of Vintage Championship and our results and a few others, but the challenges really drive this and then we have our champs coming up. So, oh, and then we've got another and, SCG and con in way, December. It, this card against PO, we haven't even talked about, but mm-hmm. this card turning a, a, a mana rock into an, a land is just a straight up upgrade for the opponent of the PO player. If you're a null rod deck, you mean? It doesn't matter. I mean, you want you want to be able to turn a soul ring into a, an island because they can't get value out of that with with. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I you said it was a straight upgrade. I thought you meant from the the PO player's perspective. No, from the opponent's <laughs> perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. No, this. So okay, I agree with you there. But this has an interesting dynamic. If you are a null rod deck, then you're going to be trophying lands, right? Yeah, in many cases, I think so. You're, you're, you're going to be downgrading yeah. tundras into basic islands. That that too. Some of the, some of the time, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be on your mind. But it's just another option. Like your opponent goes yeah. paradoxical outcome, hoping to draw three cards. You can take them down to two right there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'm going to go with the seven number. The more I think about it, and, and the the data you just relayed to me, I, I don't I don't have I'm not making any guarantees, but seven feels like where I want to be. I think that's spot on, actually. Because I, I so just to be clear, bug has vacillated quite a bit. So oh, yeah. in April it was nine percent. May was its peak, sixteen percent. Then I'm talking about bug bugar. June was ten yeah. percent. Uh, in July three percent. August six percent. In September four percent. So far, so that's projecting for about five percent for Q3. What really matters is Q4 <laughs> for our predictions. Right. So it, right. if it has numbers like Q2, you know, nine percent of even ten percent of of a hundred and some decks. That's at least that's ten decks. So mm-hmm. it would be I would take the over. Uh, I'll. <laughs> but that's assuming that one hundred percent of those bug decks yeah. play this card, and I think yes, that's probably that's a faulty assumption. Yeah. I. It, there could also. So I'm a little frustrated because I think seven is spot on. I'll just I'll go <laughs> I'll go six. I think it feels wrong, but I could I could see six seven eight anywhere in there. That sounds like you're talking yourself into the over. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, yeah. but everything you're saying sounds like eight. I think the trajectory <laughs> is the over. Um, I just think there are a number of small factors, but sure. I guess it doesn't really matter. There's no, there's no harm. <laughs> there's I'll nothing take, on the line here. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll take the over. I'll take it. You know, when when <laughs> when we come back to review this and we see seven and eight, we're gonna have a reminder discussion about how we both felt basically the same about this, <laughs> and we're just gonna, you know, whoever gets it, I'm just gonna chide you over it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it. So for refresher, here are the cards that we predicted some amount of play of for Guilds of Ravnica. Mission briefing, I predicted three. You predicted zero, which is an interesting gap. Ral, is it Viceroy? You predicted four. I predicted two. Mnemonic Betrayal, you predicted two. I predicted zero. Niv-Mizzet Parun, you predicted one. I predicted zero. And Assassin's Trophy in the lead, with you on eight and me on seven. So I took the over on all of them or all but one? All but one. All I but took one. the over on Mission Briefing. I don't yep, like that spot, but <laughs> I'll, I'll <laughs> what roll is, with what it. Was it you said earlier that you the safest bet was to be pessimistic on these? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I didn't really think of that as I was going through here over and over again. I really, I've, I voted my conscience in every case, but uh, well, the good. net result is I am far more pessimistic on this set than you are. 
yeah, I've only predicted three cards seeing play. Mission Briefing, RAL, and Assassin's Trophy. I do think Assassin's Trophy is just another one of those cards that has really good long-term legs. I think we're going to be talking about it for years to come. It's so flexible. So that brings us to the end of our Guilds of Ravnica review show. We're not in the habit of self-promotion very much on this show, but if you enjoyed this show, please think about rating us on iTunes. And the primary reason being so that other Magic players, like yourselves, can find our show with a higher rating in theory. Thank you for listening to episode 83 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.